This is Jocko Podcast number 138 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Sir, the young seal whispered in a faint voice, come here. Our hands were clasped in a handshake. Not a formal handshake like two businessmen, but palm to palm with thumbs wrapped around the back of the hand like an arm wrestling contest. A handshake of brotherhood. The young seal was feeling the morphine. I saw it in his eyes, but he was still there, still conscious and aware. He was everything a young man should be, smart, Brave, athletic, funny, loyal, and tough. He had been shot in the leg about a half an hour before. I found out later that Mikey Monsoor, a young SEAL machine gunner, had run out into heavy enemy gunfire and dragged this SEAL out of a war-torn street in the Malab district in the city of Ramadi, the violent heart of the insurgency in Iraq. The wounded seal now lay on a gurney in Charlie Med, the Camp Ramadi Field Hospital, where U.S. military surgical teams worked furiously to save the lives of gravely wounded troops almost every day. The bullet, a mammoth armor-piercing 7.62 by 54 millimeter round with a steel core, had entered his leg at the lower thigh, ripped apart flesh and bone inside his leg, and exited in his upper thigh close to the groin. It was hard to say if he would keep his leg. From the looks of the wound, my guess was no. He would lose it. The wounded seal's grip on my hand tightened, and he pulled me in, drawing me just inches from his face. I could tell he wanted to say something to me, so I turned and put my ear to his next to his mouth. I wasn't sure what to expect. Was he scared or angry or depressed that he might lose his leg? Was he nervous about what might happen next? Was he confused? He took a breath and then whispered, Sir, let me stay. Let me stay. Please, don't make me go home. I'll do anything. I'll sweep up around the camp. I can heal here. Please, please, please just let me stay with the task unit. There you go. Not scared, not angry, not depressed that he might lose his leg. Only concerned that he might have to leave our task unit. Task unit bruiser. Our task unit. Our lives. This seal was our first significant casualty. We had had guys catch some frag on previous operations. We had had some very close calls. But this was the first seal wounded from task unit bruiser whose life would be forever changed by a grave combat injury. Even if he kept his leg, the damage was so substantial that it didn't seem possible he would ever fully regain the extraordinary athleticism he had displayed previously. 
and yet this seal was only concerned that he would let me down let the task unit down let it da- his platoon and his team down this was a man this was a true friend a brother this was a hero young brave and without question more concerned for his friends than for his own life i was moved i felt tears welling up in my eyes i fought them back and i swallowed the lump in my throat this was no time to break down I was supposed to be the leader. And he needed me to be strong. And that right there is from the opening chapter of a book called The Dichotomy of Leadership, which is actually a new book. And it was written by me and my brother, Leif Babin. And Leif has been on this podcast before. We wrote Extreme Ownership together. We obviously served in Task Unit Bruiser together. And he was on this podcast. He was the first guest. He's the been the guest the most times. He was on 11, he was on 34, 65, and 114 if you want to go get some background on Leif. But I'm glad to say that he is actually back here with us again. So Leif Babin, welcome back. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, right on, man. And it's, it's good to have you back because we're done writing and editing this book, which feels good. It does feel good. It's been a, a lot of work, but uh, it's been awesome to it. And being able to tell those kind of stories like you just read, and and even though I've I've read that now a hundred times, <laughs> it's uh, just takes me immediately back to to that that situation, and um, it's just uh, extraordinary. We we were able to work with some incredible incredible seals like like that young man. Yeah, no doubt about it. it the it's it's weird when you're writing a book and you're and then you're rereading it and rereading it and rereading it. And like you said, every time I would be reading these these sections, you know, you you just get the you just you just can't help but go back there. You just can't help but go back there. And this was definitely there were some there were some parts of this book that I was writing that were uh, definitely hard to write and even hard to edit. Um, you know, even this this being one of them. And I'm glad that we're able to share. The stories of, of guys like that and that particular individual, which I don't talk about this in the book, but he he, he kept his leg, thank God, and um, he he kept getting after it for years and years, and he kept training jujitsu, and he's a total stud. Maybe sometime he'll come on the podcast. Uh, who knows? But what a, what a great guy. Now. You you also kind of kicked off the book with what I thought was a was like a solid way to kick it off, and you should you should go into that 
I know we were we were trying to pick out some good sections here, but I thought the opener that you put in, which you opened with a phrase that we've been using quite a bit lately, but kick off that that uh, introduction to the book, Dichotomy of Leadership. Stand by to get some, said someone over the inner squad radio. In the calm demeanor you might expect of a flight attendant telling airline passengers to stow their tray tables for landing. The street in front of us had emptied of people. Like magic, the local citizens had all suddenly disappeared, and we knew what that meant. Enemy attack was imminent. The hair on the back of my neck stood at rigid attention. After many a vicious gunfight in Ramadi, standby to get some was a running joke that eased the tension right when we knew trouble was coming. The more nonchalantly it could be said, under the direst of circumstances, the funnier it was. It was broad daylight as our patrol of SEALs and Iraqi soldiers made its way on foot down the narrow city street, bordered by high concrete walls on both sides. Suddenly, the world exploded. Dozens of bullets snapped through the air, each with a sharp supersonic crack, and smashed into the concrete wall next to me with thunderous impact. Shards of concrete flew everywhere. The heavy volleys of incoming fire sounded like multiple jackhammers simultaneously chewing up the street and the walls all around us. We had walked right into an enemy buzzsaw. Insurgent fighters hit us from multiple directions with belt-fed machine guns. I couldn't see them or where they were shooting from, but the the number of enemy bullets flying through the air around us was crazy. There was no place to hide. With high walls on both sides, the narrow South Central Ramadi Street provided no cover. The only thing between us and the enemy machine guns was a single parked car on the side of the road some distance up the block and the typical trash strewn about. The patrol was in a dual column formation. Each column split on opposite sides of the street, hunkered close to the walls. There was nothing to get behind that could protect us from bullets. But we did have something on our side devastating firepower. We fully expected a firefight on every patrol into this enemy hill neighborhood, and we rolled in heavy. Each squad of eight SEALs packed at least four belt-fed machine guns to suppress any enemy attack we encountered. When we came under fire, our immediate response with violent and overwhelming gunfire provided the only answer, cover and move. Having learned through the humbling experience of months of urban combat, Task Unit Bruiser had had plenty of practice in this fundamental gunfighting principle. Within nanoseconds, the SEALs with the big machine guns up front unleashed the most ruthless and lethal barrage of fire you could imagine. Despite the intensity and violence of the close urban combat, I couldn't help but smile. Couldn't help but smile. Yeah, that's uh, we've said this before, but obviously guys that have been to uh, war, usually that's the best thing in their life and the best experiences they've had in their lives, and it gives you that that type of feeling right there of where you, you can't help but smile and then you know as I just talked about and as we both know it's also the worst days of our lives are also there and and we know that you know people in the military all feel well, most of them feel the same way that you have your best days and and your worst days there and it's interesting you, <laughs> cover and move it's just it always comes back to cover and move in these in these gunfights and you know a client we were working with recently and you know remember he switched around cover and move and made it uh, second and put put simple first 
And it's like, well, there's a reason why that, that exists that way. Cover and move is first. Because if you're not working together as a team, there's no there's nothing to even keep simple. That's not happening. You just you need to start off with cover and move. Teamwork is critical. And obviously we just read a couple of sort of war story ish type things, but like extreme ownership. This book's kind of set up the same way as extreme ownership. I mean, well, not not kind of. It is set up the same way as extreme ownership, which is a story about combat that reveals a principle and then actually state what the principle is, and then we use a business example that shows how this principle applies in civilian life and usually in the business world. In fact, always in the business world, That's those are the examples that we use. Although, we could probably do another book that was about how these principles apply to your under nine-year-old soccer team or your relationship with your spouse or your relationship with your teenage daughters two of them or your relationship with your teenage son one of them or your relationship with your nine-year-old daughter or your what do you got threes and fours I got a three and a two-year-old yeah get some absolutely applies <laughs> and it, it could absolutely apply to any of those situations I think that was that was what was amazing about uh, extreme ownership um, to see how people apply that in so many aspects yeah. of their lives and now I think with, with dichotomy of leadership it's exactly the same thing yeah uh, it, it applies across all aspects of a professional and, and personal life. Well, it was weird too because when when you know when I got out of the teams, like I didn't understand, I didn't understand the broad application of what we knew. I didn't. I mean, when I started working with civilian companies, then it's like, oh, well, this is your problem. You don't keep things simple enough, or this is your problem. You don't have decentralized command, so you're trying to control all the decisions. Make it's, it, but as soon as we realized, well, I, and I realized it was like, oh, it applies to this company. Well, what about this company? And then, okay, what about this company? And you just realize, okay, and that's when I started just seeing it everywhere. And and I think, yeah, exactly right. The dichotomy of leadership is the same way, and it. Well, like I said, it's not just a book of war stories. The The point of the book is to make people better leaders, is to give them leadership tools, including me, including you. Like, when you write stuff down, you understand it better. And so, you know, part of writing these books is like, okay, how can I capture these lessons for myself? And, of course, it's nice that other people can grab them then and, and look through them. But... Like I said, it's not it's not just about war stories, but to make people better leaders. And I think I think we covered that pretty well in sort of in the intro of the book and just a couple paragraphs and you should hit that part that we talked about earlier where it just kind of gives the overall the overall view or the the high level view of the topic of the book. Every behavior or characteristic carried out by a leader can be taken too far. Leaders can become too extreme and upset the balance required to effectively lead a team. When balance is lost, leadership suffers and the team's performance rapidly declines. Even the fundamental principles of combat leadership and extreme ownership can get out of balance. A leader can cover and move too much and step on the toes of other leaders, departments, or divisions. A plan can be too simple and fail to cover likely contingencies. A team can go too far with prioritize and execute, resulting in target fixation and loss of situational awareness on newly emerging problems and threats. Even decentralized command can be taken too far when too much autonomy is given to subordinate leaders who then don't fully understand strategic goals and how to execute in support of those goals. And this idea continues on with just about everything a leader does. Leaders must be close with their people, 
but not too close that it becomes a problem. They must hold the line with discipline, but they must not become tyrannical. A leader can even become too extreme with extreme ownership. When a leader takes so much ownership of everything in his or her world that members of the team feel there's nothing left for which they can take ownership. When this happens, team members will execute only at the boss's specific direction without any root ownership or buy-in themselves, resulting in a team far less capable of overcoming obstacles and accomplishing the mission. Therefore, balance in leadership is crucial to victory. You can't say that one enough, and you literally can't say that one enough. I was thinking, so when you have the same word too many time on, times on a page, it's, it's not good writing, right? It's not good to use the same word over and over again. So I remember there was times where we would have the word balance like nine times in a paragraph. But there's, it's like, hey, there's no real other way to say what we're trying to say. you got to balance these things. And it's interesting, too, as, as, as you're reading that, I'm just thinking of, all the different situations we've been in in the last few years with Echelon Front where we've seen every single one of these things, you know? The person that comes up, hey, we want to keep this plan simple, and then they don't think of any contingencies, or hey, I'm just trying to cover and move, and that means I'm going to go and do the job for them, and all of a sudden they're making everyone mad because they're stepping on everyone's toes. I mean, decentralized command where no one knows what's going on because it's like, hey, I'm a hands-off leader. I'm using decentralized command. But boss, what in God's name do you actually want? want us to do so all these things are 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 we've lived we've lived through them now and it became really evident even though we have you know that's the last chapter the last chapter in extreme ownership is the dichotomy of leadership and discipline equals freedom and you know we put it in there because we knew it was important but now after working with more people over the past few years it's become so obvious that this is like such a critical the being able to balance 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 I even use that word nine times in every paragraph because that's what you have to do if you're a leader and and we talk about this too in the opening of in the opening of the book and you know in the opening of dichotomy of leadership we talk about how one of the problems with the book extreme ownership is the title extreme ownership because it made everyone just want to get extreme with everything <laughs> I'm gonna be super extreme and so that means you know what I'm gonna do we get extreme on to own everything and we that was one of the earliest things that I started noticing was people that took so much ownership so I'm a leader I'm in charge and I take so much ownership of everything that everyone below me in the chain of command there's nothing left for them to own and and all of a sudden they're just feel like hey they're just along for the ride and they're just gonna do what they're told to do and all their initiative is gone and they don't they don't even have, I, they don't, they don't, it's not that they don't believe, but they just think, okay, well, we're just going to do what we're told. So it's not their plan. And so they're going to do the best of their ability, but it's not theirs. They don't own it. So all those things that you just talked about are, are, are things that we've, we've now seen. And there are things that, that I struggle with. You know, I think there's, there are things that you struggle. I think we, each of us struggle with them. It's the hardest part about leadership. And as we've seen that over and over again, that, that, you know, that brief introduction that we gave it in chapter 12 of extreme ownership, uh, you know, introduced the concept, but this dives so much deeper into those challenges. And I, and I think that's what, what I love about this book is it answers the, the questions to, that, that we get most often yeah. about, about how to balance that because that's the hardest part uh, and it's so difficult to do. And I, I remember at our, our first muster, there was a question about, you know, can you take, to, you know, can extreme ownership go too far? I actually answered the question, well, I think if you're properly understanding what extreme ownership means, no. Uh, but, but you actually answered yeah, I was that like, as like, I was like yes, absolutely, you can. <laughs> you can take too much ownership. And I think that's what people take that as, 
well, I've got to do everything. Like, no, you, you're responsible for everything. That's yeah. what extreme ownership means. Yeah. Uh, but certainly uh, you can you can absolutely take too much ownership where no one's doing anything. And I think we explained that pretty well in this book. And and th- this, this book was written just like extreme ownership. The economy of leadership was written to help leaders a- as a reference manual. And, and if it's something that, you know, if I see pages uh, like we see so many copies of extreme ownership, I mean, I, I want to see pages that are underlined, that are highlighted, that are tabbed, that are, that are utilized by leaders and uh, and if we've done that and this is a manual that helps uh, leaders lead better uh, and be better people and lead better teams then, then this will have accomplished its mission you know what's cool is is I think think it's very similar to the fact that with extreme ownership right with that attitude with that attitude when you get in that mindset you start seeing it everywhere and you start when someone makes an excuse you you recognize immediately oh that's an excuse like Echo is giving you a hard time about your your lack of a haircut, and and you know you were you were saying like oh it was yeah, all fault. yeah it's, it's my <laughs> yeah. fault and we're we're laughing about it right, and and of course I was I was like well you know I should have I should have told you you know there's gonna be a timeline and you need to get a haircut before but you know we're joking about it but in the same time that we're joking about it the fact that like you brought that echo uh, that up is a real thing and for us to be sitting here joking about it means that we actually think about it we actually every time you you know Leif's making a a joking excuse like oh Jocko he's it's like we all know and it's a it's it's a it sinks in and it becomes really hard like for someone to make an actual excuse becomes really really hard and I think for me that's one thing that I've benefited over the last few years of seeing other people what you it's it becomes when you're aware of it when you're aware of it the balance becomes much much easier to see and that's what I think is gonna be very helpful about this book is people won't know that they're out of balance that's the biggest problem the biggest problem is they don't know they're thinking my, my guys aren't taking any initiative what's wrong with them and it's like well you're micromanaging them you've gone too far in that direction you've gone too far in controlling everything that they do they think that that's the they think that if you want them to do something that you're gonna tell them to do it and other than that they're gonna sit there and stand by and wait for orders and it's like no so and you if you don't understand that you can be out of balance then you won't recognize that but if you know hey my guys aren't taking in any initiative I wonder what's wrong with them well actually maybe it's me maybe it's me and maybe I am micromanaging them so much that I've beaten the initiative out of them so what I need to do is back off a little bit and give them some leeway and give them some ownership of what they're doing and let them make some decisions down there and if if you do that then you start seeing it come back and you start seeing them take initiative and you feel good and that's a you know one of the chapters in the book is actually that right there where I talk about my first deployment to Iraq, where I, when I first got to Iraq, my first time in combat, I was just basically wanted to own everything because that was my that's my personality. Like I'm going to take ownership of this, and then I realized my guys, I'm like, oh, you know, they're not really taking the initiative I want them to take. Well, why is that? It's because I'm micromanaging them. And finally, luckily, we got overwhelmed with operations. We had so many operations to conduct, and I was like, I can't, I can't manage all these I can't oversee everything that's happening and I had to cut the guys loose and as soon as I cut them loose and said hey you got this and you got that and you got the other thing the guys just started stepping up and running everything like I knew like like of course they could because they're freaking highly capable guys and they started kicking ass and I realized like oh I don't even barely even need to be here right barely even need to be here whereas in the beginning I thought oh this is all if it wasn't for me you know and I'm, I'm only talking about a period of a few weeks of me trying to micromanage everything so I think what's going to be beneficial about this book is that people will see how they can get out of balance and 
and they'll also see that that balance pertains to just about everything and every trait that you have that's positive as a leader you can overdo and you can turn it into a negative trait if you go too far so you gotta watch out for that you definitely got to watch out for that. It's easy for us to see. You know, we always talk about detachment. Detachment is so important. And and for us, with you know, through our company Echelon Front, as we're working with these leaders and working with these companies, you you can see it. You know, it, it just it just stands out uh, so obvious that someone is, you know, they're trying to cover and move by helping another department, and yet they're stepping on people's toes and they're pissing people off. And you know, like why are you? You know, you're trying to do my job and make me look bad. Yeah. And and they they're like, well, I'm trying to cover and move. I'm just, just like to you help. told me. I'm just trying to help. Yeah, and, yeah. and you're, yeah. then you're saying, well, you have to be careful about that. You yeah. have to, you have to balance it. And so once, you know, it, it is the absolute most common problem we see all the time. And, and and even for you know folks that have read extreme ownership, you know, three or four, you know, multiple times, yeah. that that are really trying hard to be better leaders, they struggle with that. And this is uh, something to help them uh, and, and help leaders everywhere. And I, you know, I, we wrote the book too so that it could be read. Um, it's it's a follow on, certainly a, a sequel. Uh, you gave me a chance to correct that on the. Uh, <laughs> Why? What'd you say? What'd you say on the? You were talking about Jaws two. Yeah, on Jaws two. Podcast one fourteen, and, and I said it's not a sequel; it's a standalone book. But it absolutely is a sequel. I mean, it's yeah, a yeah. follow-on book. Um, it expands on the concepts. However, we did write it so that that it is a standalone book, and yeah. you, you can read uh, you can read extreme ownership if you have if you can read dichotomy without having read extreme ownership. Yeah, uh, you'll certainly understand it and, and be able to apply it. Yeah, but you'd understand the concepts better. If you read extreme ownership first no question and then you jump into dichotomy which yeah like you said can you read it alone sure you can I guess there's echo we need like some kind of a movie reference here sure. like yeah I'm thinking term could you see Terminator 2 yes on its own yeah. right yeah but you will you will get more out of it yeah. if you saw Terminator yeah. 1 first. Yeah, same, Correct. Same with Rambo. See, look at me, just nailing. Right, you're nailing it. I, yeah, so Rambo, right? First Blood Part 2, same deal. Where mm-hmm. you could watch just Rambo and be pretty pretty happy about it. But hold on now. My problem with that is we know that Terminator 2 is equivalent in quality to Terminator 1. Correct? Correct. Or, right? Correct, yeah. Right, Leif? I think so. Okay. Terminator Two is awesome, except for are the we, kid. Are we saying that? Weak. Are we saying that better Rambo Two, which I don't even think I've seen, First Blood Part Two? Yeah, I don't. Is are we saying that's the same level of quality as Rambo for One? No, you you got to be hard. careful there. Yeah. That's what you I think. We're, that's where I think. Where yeah. we're, I mean, I'm not uh, saying that, it's necessarily was... Jaws Two, which <laughs> Jaws One, which is a masterpiece. Just right, yeah. masterpiece. Jaws, Jaws One, Jaws. It's not even called Jaws One. It's just called Jaws. Yeah. Right. Jaws Two. Yeah. Problematic. We got issues. <laughs> sure. So yeah. what I'm saying is, mm-hmm. we're more like the Terminator scenario. Gotcha. Yeah. Or, or, or there's aliens. I was going to say aliens. aliens is an aliens. awesome one, right? You can yeah. totally watch that movie standalone, uh, but obviously it gives you some more context if you watch the first one. Yes. But I think the second one's actually better. Yeah. Than, yeah. than the first. Do one. you yeah. feel like? Do you feel like Dichotomy is better? I actually do. I actually do feel. Yeah. I feel it's better. I, I mean, I, I'm interested to hear what readers think about it, but I, I think that it's more useful and applicable to uh, to, to leaders. Uh, I mean, we, we have three years uh, uh, additional leadership experience and, and not only evaluating our experiences in, in, in combat and in the SEAL teams, but uh, but now working with hundreds of leaders. And, and uh, I mean, really, uh, we're talking, you know, a couple of hundred plus companies that we've worked with in that time. 
um, easily, you know, between just me and you probably. Not, that's not even counting some of the other members of our team. So um, we, we've seen this in, uh, in a whole lot of different scenarios, and, and I think it really addresses the – it's a direct application to the problems that we see. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty hopeful, and I'm looking forward to, to, to readers' feedback on it. Was it easier for you to write? Yes. Yeah, I mean, for me, it definitely was. And I say easier just because we, well, we became better writers as we wrote uh, Extreme Ownership. Extreme Ownership, the first version that we did Extreme Ownership was in the third person. And I forget why we even did that. But it was about these two guys named Leif and Jocko. It was about, it was, I don't know, I, for, I kind of forget. I why think I'm, it was a recommendation that came to us from yeah, the literary agent you know, or the publisher or whatever. And, we, and no, then we finally had to say, yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah, know, but, you know that friend of yours that talks about themselves in the third person that you make fun <laughs> of? Yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, and, and it's weird because there's uh, the, the book, there's, there's a couple books I've done on the podcast, Clay Pigeons in St. Lowe by Glover Johns who's the guy that you know Hackworth wrote about he wrote the book Clay Pitches Clay Pitches to St. Low and it's in the third person about a guy named Major Johns and it's him and he writes a thing in the beginning and says hey I didn't feel comfortable talking about myself so I did it wrote it this way and it's like okay and the th- the only thing I would say that's cool about it is you could he could kind of give an outside view but the thing that's not cool about it is he couldn't be, I was thinking this right now, which is kind of what I want to hear. And that's why I normally cover books that are first person, people that actually experience it. But he's a guy that did a couple other people I've, when I've you're, done. When you're Glover Johns, though, and you're, you're uh, David Hackworth's sea daddy, I think you can, uh, yeah, you can you do, can what do you want, whatever man. you want to do. You can do what you want, for sure. Uh, now, that's another part that's, again, you know, we've we've... In this book, we set it up the same way with combat story, principle, followed by a business example. But one thing that I think, and this is feedback that, that we both got, that I certainly got, was that for what, for what because the consequences are so high in combat, it makes the principle very clear. And even though people might know, well, I've never been in combat, but they understand that if we're not working together as a team doing cover and move, we will die. And so when they understand that, they go, oh, okay, now that means if I'm not working with the other department, then we're gonna lose money or we're not gonna complete our mission or we're not gonna take market share. Yes, so I think one of the strongest points of, of extreme ownership that we did again is the combat stories to to sort of introduce the principles. And plus it's cool to hear cool, cool stories like that. But one of them, I think chapter three, another another one that we pulled out that said it'd be good to sort of cover this one real quick is you opened up chapter three with a little, a, a little bit of get some, I guess we could say. And hit that one, man. I wanna, I wanna hear that one. I wanna hear the Texas Batman get crazy in, uh, in Ramadi in 2006. This is bringing back some awesome memories here. Bright orange tracers streaked like laser beams just a few feet over our heads, each supersonic bullet zipping past with a thunderous crack. Holy shit, I thought, as we quickly ducked down behind the roof wall. Those are friendly shooting at us. I looked over at Dave Burke, who crouched down nearby. Like the other seals on the roof with us, we tried to stay low enough not to get our head shot off. Dave looked back at me and shook his head with a smile that mixed humor and concern. That's not cool, Dave said, the understatement of the year. Dave Burke was a U.S. Marine Corps major, a fighter pilot by trade. 
He had been the lead instructor at the legendary U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School, better known as Top Gun. Dave had left the cockpit behind and volunteered to serve on the ground as a forward air controller in the most dangerous place in Iraq, Ramadi. He led a supporting arms liaison team, or SALT, attached to the U.S. Marine Corps 5th Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. Dave and his 12 Marines from SALT-6 accompanied Charlie Platoon to coordinate with the aircraft supporting this operation in the skies overhead. They patrolled in with us on foot to spearhead the operation ahead of the U.S. Army and Iraqi Army units. A U.S. tank 200 yards away had fired a burst from its heavy machine gun directly over our position. It was friendly fire, a blue-on-blue in U.S. military parlance. To be killed or horribly wounded by enemy fire was one thing. To be killed by our own American forces was something much worse. That was way too close for comfort, I thought, in the seconds following as I crouched as low as possible behind the low concrete wall that was our only means of cover. We had to shut that down immediately and alert the tank that we were friendly forces. To do so, I had to contact the specific tank commander directly via radio and tell them to cease fire. The tank's heavy machine gun was a 50 caliber M2 Browning, known as the Maw Deuce. It packed a hell of a punch. In U.S. military service since 1933, it had proven its deadly effectiveness in every American war since World War I. Each massive round could take a man's head clean off or remove the bulk of his chest cavity. It could also punch right through concrete walls like the one we were hiding behind. We had just received a fully automatic burst of probably a dozen rounds in a matter of seconds. If I didn't shut down the fire immediately and let the U.S. tank know we were friendlies, it could mean horrible wounds and death for a number of us. Blue on blue. It's it, even in extreme ownership. We talked. There's three episodes of Blue on Blue potential or blue, yeah, with with Chris potentially shooting the uh, American trooper that was in a in a building. The Bradley getting ready to light up stoners guys in and also the blue on blue that the book starts off with there's it's it's interesting and a reality of war that we talk about blue on blue a lot in that urban environment the other thing I noticed is did you uh, I don't mean to accuse you here like you know on this in this format but each massive round could take a man's head clean off. Is that not just jacked from Clint Eastwood right there? Come on, man. That's 44 Magnum. That's Dirty Harry. Right? I can neither confirm nor deny Look that. at yeah. you. Yeah. Look at you. It. There's uh, the, did, did, did you consult with Echo for you know part of your writing here? <laughs> Echo, Echo, and I, uh, we see eye to eye on the movie quotes. Yes, yeah. we do. There was a little. There was a use of parlance in there too. That uh, in the parlance, oh, of, the our parlance times. of our times, you threw a little, little. Big Lebowski in there that we had previously. Look, that was, that was a crazy situation, and we were. I thought we'd done everything. What was so crazy about that situation for us is I thought we'd done everything in our power to mitigate the risk of that and let everybody know where we were, marked our position, you know, talk, talked and coordinated with people, and uh, and to still get shot at by friendlies. Um, you know, they, uh, that was, that was crazy. Dave and I were sitting looking at each other like, man, this, this isn't good. This isn't good at all. So it was, it was a, I was fumbling for that radio, trying to get and, and talk to them immediately. Uh, and thank God, uh, as we talked about on previous podcasts, yeah. uh, you'd come down on us to be able to use, uh, to be able to learn how to use those radios ourselves and not just rely on the radio. And, uh, and I was able to swap over and, and, and make direct comps to that tank and, and, and get them to cease fire. 
and that's one of the things that I like held, completely held the line on and and you know and you talk about in the book how there's some other things where I allowed a little bit of slack and you actually you actually kind of capture that in a couple pages later that I pulled up here it's uh middle of page 76 punch through that little section right there and I think it's a it's a good good um kind of captures what we're talking about in terms of and and you were saying this to me early earlier today you're like everyone thinks Jocko would just be like hey you're going to shut up and do what I tell you to do and it's like well actually there's some things I'm going to tell you that but there's some th- it's going there's going to be a balance well you actually you never said just shut up and do do us do what I tell you to do right I, I'm sure you probably wanted to but uh many many times yeah. uh, and still do I'm I'm, I'm sure often but th- there is uh it's not effective. It's never effective to do that. And I think so many leaders that want to just, you know, why won't they just do what I tell them to do? It's, it's people get really frustrated by that, but obviously there, you got to hold the line. You absolutely have to hold the line, you know, and if you would relented on, on us being able to learn how to use our radios, I mean, that could have cost lives right there. Another burst of rounds comes, comes to the roof wall or we take a main gun round. Now you're talking the, the cannon on the tank, the 120 millimeter main gun round, you know, just smash through both sides of the walls. You know, it would have, it would have been absolutely catastrophic. Those guys think, you know, they're under attack. They're shooting back at what they think is enemy. They don't yeah. even realize it. And, and it's not uh, like they were they were not ready to use those main gun rounds if they had to. I mean, they were they were putting some buildings down over there for sure. And that's and that's the hard part, right? Is that you've got to hold the line and there's standards that can't be compromised and you've got to you're you're failing your team and you're failing as a leader if you're not keeping those standards uh high and making sure the team achieves them and yet also you can't be the unrelenting taskmaster, the slave driver that just smashes people down and says, shut up and do what I tell you to do. Yeah, and this is something that I bring up a lot when I'm working with companies is like, do you actually want people to do to do whatever you tell them to do? And the the immediate answer is like, well, yeah, I just want everyone to shut up and do what I tell them to do. Well, the actual answer is no, you don't want that. If you're a good leader, what you want is if I tell Leif, hey, go take that building over there, and you say to me, no, and I say, why not? And you say, well, there's an IED in the front yard and we'll all get killed if we go there. I go, okay, thank you. Now, as opposed to you're just going to blindly do whatever I tell you to do, well, then that's going to be problematic. So there's a balance in this too. And and that's something that we talk about all the time. But to surround, you don't want to surround yourself with yes men. You don't want to surround yourself with yes men. And we, I've seen plenty of companies where the boss man has surrounded himself with yes men and they yes themselves into the grave. Because they're the, the everyone's just agreeing. Oh, yep, we'll we'll do that. That sounds like a great plan, boss. Oh yeah, yes, boss. That sounds like a great plan, boss. And and the next thing you know, someone along the line should have said, "Hey, boss, that doesn't make any sense." Hey, boss, like, oh, we got a good relationship with these people over here, but you know what? They're raising their prices a little bit. We don't want to work with them anymore. Okay, well, let's think about that. You know that that that's one of our biggest suppliers. Do we really want to nix our relationship with our biggest supplier? Does that make sense? Well, you know, they're getting in our face. Now, a yes man will be like, that's right, boss. We don't take no crap from no one. We'll screw those guys. But maybe you want someone below you in the chain of command that says, hey, boss, let's think about this. That's our biggest supplier. If we cut them off and demand goes up, we won't be able to service our customers. That could be problematic. Wouldn't you agree? How about we negotiate with them? So there's my point is you don't just want people 
you just don't want to be surrounded by yes men. You want people that are going to question you. You want people that are going to maybe that's why I like you so much, Leif, because you you question you you have no problem questioning what I'm saying. <laughs> I have, I have it's no all problem good. pushing pushing back. <laughs> yeah, the humble, not passive. Uh, uh, I've I, I've never uh, never been passive. So, <laughs> but I think this this here uh, page seventy six. That's a good that's a good little way to capture what we were talking about. As I reflected upon Jocko's demonstration of a leader's responsibility to ensure standards are maintained, I thought about the times in my career when I failed to do so. As a young leader, I knew there were times we needed to improve our performance, do another run through the kill house where we practice close quarters combat, or add an additional rehearsal to ensure we were fully prepared. Yet in those moments, I sometimes hadn't held the line. I hadn't pushed the team hard enough. Any additional work assigned to the team was going to get pushed back and generate complaints. And there were times when I let things slide, confusing the idea of taking care of your people with allowing them not to work as hard. But in the end, that resulted in mediocre performance. And the team never got better, never held each other accountable. This was a failure of leadership, my leadership. I also recognized the dichotomy. There were other times when I was overbearing. I insisted on doing things a certain way because it was my way or harped on trivial matters that were strategically unimportant, thinking I was doing right by holding the line. It caused unnecessary friction, stifled growth, and inhibited junior leaders on the team from stepping up. It prevented us from functioning properly with effective decentralized command. I had seen and worked for numerous leaders throughout my Navy career who had been overbearing, and it wasn't the way I wanted to lead. Some of them imposed harsh discipline, screamed at their people, and crushed the morale of the team. No one wanted to follow them. They might accomplish an immediate task, but in the long run, the team's growth was smothered. Often, their negative example stood starkly in my mind. I never want to be a leader like that. There you go. The tyrannical leader that's running around screaming at everyone. And, and, and like you just said, they'll get some little tasks accomplished. And they actually think that what's horrible is they get some little task accomplished because they screamed and yelled, and it reinforces that behavior. And so they become even more tyrannical and yell and scream even more and they never see the fact that acting that way It'll get you a little some little short-term thing done, but you'll never get everything you can out of people You never get everything you can out of somebody that you've beaten into submission You're they're not going to perform to their fullest potential and capability and that's just where you're gonna be That's just where you're gonna be the other thing It takes This is this is one of those things like if you've got something that's hard to do, right? You've got something that the team has got to do that's hard to do, and you're wishy-washy about it. You know it's the right thing to do, but you're wishy-washy about how you approach the team with doing it. You, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I'm reading another book right now by a guy that was in Vietnam with Hackworth, and he's saying just he would just lay down the law. Like Hackworth was just like, no, we're doing this. This is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be. And that's that's what it is you know I've got so many examples from my career but I'll tell you a really kind of a lame one but it's it's worth telling so back in the day guess what we used to do in the teams we used to drink beer a lot of it and that was kind of like hey you know we're, we're, we're in the steels you know we're beer drinking frogmen and that's cool and I was in a seal platoon where we drank a lot even more than a normal seal platoon which is which is a lot put you in the running for a lot 
and this is back in the 90s there's no war going on and I've said this before kind of the way that we proved ourselves because there's a certain level of sacrifice you have to make to prove to your teammates that you're like you're willing to sacrifice well one of the ways that you can sacrifice is you can just drink a lot and prove that you can go all night and go hard and still get up the next day and so I was in a seal platoon where we drank a lot just about everyone in the chain of command except for the 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 commander the OIC but everyone else you know we drank hard and you know we we partied and whatever and we were a shipboard we were an arg platoon so we were deploying on board a ship and when we were getting ready to deploy on the ship it was kind of like oh well you know we'll just we'll just because you're not allowed to drink any alcohol on a ship you're not allowed to have any alcohol you're not allowed to drink any alcohol you after 90 days at sea you can get a beer day they give 45. you 45 was it 45 well, back when I was in, no. <laughs> so you get think, you get one beer 45 days so they gave, 90, us, you they gave us at two yeah. beers but I will say they gave us fosters so they were big oil cans right <laughs> but you're living large yeah I, I did two two beer days in one deployment anyways you're not allowed other than that you're not allowed to drink that's the rules and so I think it, it wasn't like we openly discussed like how are we gonna smuggle beer or maybe we did a little bit but our bosses came down and like yeah well there's no drinking on no drinking on the ship and we were like oh, okay those are the rules they just came down and put the rules down like hey no drinking on the ship and I had respect for my, my office my uh, platoon commander at the time had respect for my platoon chief at the time and they came down and said, yeah, well, there's no drinking on ship, so don't even think about it. We're like, okay, cool. That's the, the law came down, and we just got on board. We just got on board with it. Whereas if it would have been, well, you know, a little bit of wishy-washiness, us young E3s, E4s, and E5s, if they would have been remotely wishy-washy, we'd have been like, oh, cool. You guys go drink whatever you want. Just don't let us see it or whatever. And that would have been bad because eventually, guess what? You put a bunch of seals on a ship with, with booze, and you leave them on there for multiple days at sea, months at sea, well, they're gonna have an incident of some kind. They're gonna get in a fight, they're gonna throw up somewhere, they're gonna, you know, so just dumb stuff. It's gonna, gonna happen. get to the highest level of attention, it's gonna be a total disaster. It's gonna be a total disaster. Yeah. So the idea of actually just stepping up and holding the line, and I'll tell you, what I learned as a leader is it's liberating to do that. It's liberating to say, hey, look, here's the rules, and, and, you know, I did this with the fact of when we got back to Ramadi, when we got to Ramadi and they told us we had to work with Iraqi soldiers and everyone was kind of hemming and hawing about having to work with Iraqi soldiers. And I told you guys, don't even submit a concept of operations without Iraqi soldiers. Don't even submit it because we're not doing it. And you guys were like, okay. Got it. Yeah. It, it is super liberating. I, I think that's the, you know, one of the things that, that I, you know, that, that I learned from you as we started working together. I mean, it, it and I talk to people about this all the time, I've talked about it on the podcast before, but it was the kind of things that you know you probably should be doing, but for whatever reason you are. And, and, and you know, for you could just put it in perspective for me of like, it's very black and white of like, no, if you're, not, if you're not holding the line on these things that are important and pushing your team to perform at the highest standard or making sure they're not gonna do something that's gonna get them in trouble or cause massive issues, not only for us, but for the entire, you know, not only for our unit, but the entire SEAL teams, then, then that's you're failing them as a leader. You, you've got to hold the line on that stuff. You've got to, and and it is very liberating to say, oh, 
check. Okay, that's the way it is. Yep. And, I, and I think that ambiguity is very frustrating for people, but they don't know what's right. They don't know yep. what's wrong. They can get away with stuff. Here. Well, the, uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is, but, but the people below you yeah. in the chain of command, they get frustrated because they're like, well, what does that mean? And they're yeah. going to push it to the envelope that they this can. This guy got away with it over here, but that guy didn't. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's, yeah, those are the kind of things where there needs a, there's got to be a standard. You got to hold that standard. And, and it's, I, I, the team is so much better off when you do that. And, and certainly Bruiser absolutely was. And, and this is one of those things where then people think, well, Jocko always holds the line and there'll be no slack whatsoever, right? No fucking slack, right? That's how we roll. And it's like, mm, actually, there is slack and there's times where you give slack. And I mean, I, mean I always talk about and we always talk about how I was super strict about uniforms, right? Like, hey, we're gonna wear uniforms, no patches, all this stuff, right? We talk about that stuff all the time. But when someone was in, when we were, when we were in our camp, I didn't care what you wore. If you weren't going to be interacting with the Army or the Marine Corps, I didn't care what you wore at all. I mean, I barely put on a shirt when we were on bit, right? I mean, I'd be sitting in the you, tactical operations center. I mean, flip I, flops, yeah, flip flops, and, and green, and green shorts, shorts, and that's and, uh, it. And, brown t-shirt, yeah, and a brown T-shirt. And, sometimes, yeah, sometimes, and and so I didn't. I'm not holding line. I'm not getting crazy because guess what? That's not important. If I would have been running around policing up people's uniforms inside of our camp which was just us man that would have wasted a bunch of leadership capital and frustrated everyone and then guess what when I tell them hey you got to learn how to program your radio that is that is explained with the same importance as hey you got to blouse your boots when you're inside our camp that's the wrong message to send. So that's why this, that's why I wrote this book, because this is about balance. You've gotta be able to balance when to hold the line, what's important, what's worth holding the line for, and what things do you go, okay, you know what, you, you know what, Leif, you guys wanna do it that way, that's cool, go, do it. And that's what you need to learn. That balance, that balance is hard. It's hard to do. I think that, again, I think the awareness of it, I think the awareness of it, and, I don't really know when I recognize the awareness of it. I mean, I know like when um, when Flynn Flynn puts up the slides of like the Jocko brief from back in the day. I talked about the dichotomy of leadership back then. I'm surprised I even knew what dichotomy meant. <laughs> probably right? looked it up right before the brief. <laughs> yeah, I probably looked it up right before the brief and said, "What what am I talking about?" But it's one of those things. I recognized it. I saw it, and I could definitely see it. But now and just the more we work with companies even when I was in the teams the more I was working with a seal platoon you'd see when a guy was like here's a good example that you know a, when a guy talks too much when a, when you have a leader that just talks all the time just doesn't stop he always has something else he he won't let anyone else get the last word it's always that guy's people stop listening to him because he's talking all the time and it's like hey I got a good idea well why don't you be quiet for a little while and I I hated to have to tell that to somebody because they get super self-conscious. But you know, I usually phrase it a different way, like, "Hey, you should, you should, you should let your guys run a little bit. You know, let them, let them get the last word in. Let it's going to give them more ownership of what you're doing. If, if when they get done saying, and that's how we're going to do it tonight, and then this guy chimes in, and you know what? When we do it that way, and you're like, bro, you just said that. <laughs> you don't need to say it again. He's like, you don't need to double tap. Guys would say this debriefing. I'm going to double tap that. Like that's already been tapped. <laughs> Don't double tap it. We're gonna triple tap this thing. We used to have a symbol. If you can't see this, if you're listening, we'd put our 
two whatever two peace signs and and touch your thumbs together and it's like four legs sticking up in the air that's a dead horse that's the symbol for dead horse bro you don't need to say this again it's a dead horse quit beating it to death <laughs> wait what is double what is ta- double tap like, double tap like- well when you shoot a target you shoot it once and then what you normally do is you shoot it twice boom boom and so it's called a double tap it's like so, a, fa- a fast mul- mobile so right, if, if i was debriefing you and and I was like, Echo, you know, you need to keep your uh, shot groups a little bit tighter on the next run. Mm-hmm. Cool, you got it. Yeah. And, and that's it. Well, to double tap on that, you know, you really need to work on the shot groups. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it, I'm, I'm saying the same thing. Kind of yeah. like I second that notion, yeah. kind of thing. It is, but and if you said that, that, if you said I second that, you could leave it there, right? Yeah. But if you said I second that. Because you really need to tighten up your groups because God. your groups are a little bit dispersed around yeah. the target area, and that's going to be bad. We all know it's bad, bro. <laughs> yeah. We all know. Think, think office space TPS report. Oh, God. Hundred percent clear now. And now, all that being said, so it's cool. I think again, having the combat stories let some of these things shine and that's a good example right there you're talking first person what you're actually thinking which I think is powerful but it's good also to to outline the principles and th- and that's what we did so here's one of the principles we outlined and this is an important one because man we got because we talk about being aggressive as a matter of fact we have t-shirts that say default aggressive sure. right like we're not playing around with being aggressive and what does that mean? That means that we get some people in the, in the military and in the civilian sector that we say de- default mode aggressive, they go default mode aggressive and they don't know when to stop. They get reckless, they get careless, they go too hard. And so going back to the book here, problems aren't going to solve themselves. A leader must get aggressive and take action to solve the problems and implement a solution. Being too passive and waiting for a solution to appear often enables the problem to escalate and get out of control. The enemy isn't going to back off. The leader must get aggressive and put the enemy in check. The good deal isn't going to deliver itself to a company. The leader has to go out and make a good deal happen. Changes and new methodologies in a team aren't going to implement themselves. Leaders need to aggressively implement them. An aggressive mindset should be the default setting of any leader. Default aggressive. This means that the best leaders, the best teams, don't wait to act. Instead, understanding the strategic vision or commander's intent, they aggressively execute to overcome obstacles, capitalize on immediate opportunities, accomplish the mission, and win. Rather than passively waiting to be told what to do, default aggressive leaders proactively seek out ways to further the strategic mission. They understand the commander's intent, and where they have authority to do so, they execute. For decisions that are beyond their pay grade or above their authority, default aggressive leaders still make a recommendation up the chain of command to solve problems and execute key tasks to achieve strategic victory. In SEAL platoons and task units, we expect this from leaders at every level, right down to the frontline trooper in charge of just himself and his small piece of the mission. But this mentality is crucial to any leader in any team or organization. It is just as critical to success in business as on the battlefield. Aggressive means proactive. 
but it doesn't mean that leaders can get angry, lose their temper, or be aggressive toward their people. A leader must always deal professionally with subordinates on the team, peers, leaders up the chain of command, customers or clients, and personnel in supporting roles outside the immediate team. Speaking angrily to others is ineffective. Losing your temper is a sign of weakness. The aggression that wins on the battlefield, in business, or in life is directed not toward people, but toward solving problems, achieving goals, and accomplishing the mission. It is also critical to balance aggression with careful thought and analysis to make sure that risks have been assessed and mitigated. The dichotomy with the default aggressive mindset is that sometimes hesitation allows a leader to further understand a situation so that he or she can react properly to it. Rather than immediately respond to enemy fire, sometimes the prudent decision is to wait and see how it develops. Is it a simple reconnaissance by fire? Is it a feint by the enemy meant to distract from the real attack? Is the enemy simply trying to lure you into a confined area where they have a superior force waiting to ambush? A careful moment of consideration might reveal the enemy's true intentions. To be overly aggressive without critical thinking is to be reckless. That can lead the team into a disaster and put the greater mission in peril. To disregard prudent counsel when someone with experience urges caution to dismiss significant threats or to fail to plan for likely contingencies is foolhardy. It is bad leadership. A chief contributing factor to recklessness comes from what military historians have long referred to as the disease of victory. This disease takes place when a few battlefield successes produce an overconfidence in a team's own tactical prowess while underestimating the capabilities of its enemy or competitor. This is a problem not just for combat leaders, but for leaders and teams anywhere in any arena throughout the business world and the civilian sector. It is a leader's duty to fight against this disease so that the team, despite its success, never gets complacent. The risk in any action must be carefully weighed against the potential rewards of mission success. And of course, to counter that thought, the cost of inaction must be weighed as well. As aggressive as leaders must be, leaders must be cautious that they are not running to their deaths simply because it is their instinct to take action. The dichotomy between aggression and caution must be balanced. So be aggressive, but never reckless. So there's a principle principle laid out and then of course it's followed up with a business example of which there are manifold of of businesses where the business gets too aggressive they start getting properties to put more stores into and they build up all this rent that they got to pay every month the next thing you know they have a down month and they got real estate bills to pay or they start hiring a ton of people because they get super aggressive and that's you know kind of where this story leads to is we're bringing gonna bring in all these people because we think this future success is coming and the next thing you know your overhead is so huge because you got overly aggressive you end up with problems 
that that is hard too. I mean, that's so hard because it <laughs> that is absolutely in my nature is to, and I think to, in into and so many people that resonate with extreme ownership that come to the musters that I mean we we've got default aggressive leaders that want to go dominate the universe, and you've got to really you you've got to really take a step back and detach and think okay wh- what am I not thinking about what am I not seeing how am I planning for those contingencies we just talked about you know a situation today you know with with a, a client where. Uh, you know, they, they, when things are going really well, right, that's when you got to be looking at, okay, what, what, what's, what's, what's about to go wrong that I haven't seen yet? You know, what am I not planning for? So it, it is very, very difficult to, to balance this as a leader, uh, but you absolutely have to balance it. You have to be aggressive. You have to maneuver. You know, so many people get, you know, the, the paralysis through analysis, you know, people talk about, uh, don't want to make it, make a decision until, you know, the solution is right there and it's a hundred percent guaranteed. Nothing is ever a hundred percent guaranteed. And by the time that's that you know that's even close to being that you know the, the your competition's already maneuvered on the battlefield you're going to get wiped out and killed you know in the business world you know you're going to get uh, uh, you, you're going to get crushed by your competition and and so and yet being aggressive and also being prudent so that you're not yeah. falling into the traps not running to your desk not setting your team up for total disaster and it's it's the only the only answer to this the only answer to this is you have to be balanced that's the only answer because if you go too far in one direction or the other, if you get super aggressive and you take too much risk and you'll get wiped out, if you don't do anything and you sit there, you're gonna get wiped out. You have to you have to balance these two all the time. And yeah, you're right. This is something that it's something that we see all the time. And I saw it, you know, train in SEAL platoons. You get the guy that's super hyper aggressive and Every time there's something going on, they're hey, let's send a fire team over there. And okay, you send you send a fire team over there, and then that fire team gets whacked. We'll send another fire team over there. Okay, then that fire team gets whacked. We'll send another fire team. Next thing you know, you don't have a platoon left. Okay, so that was good. You, you got everyone killed because you were hyper aggressive. The other end of the spectrum is well, we're not sure where the fire is coming from, so we're going to sit here and wait. Okay, well, well, while you're not shooting at the enemy, the enemy is maneuvering. And they are getting high ground and they are getting a superior position and this is the exact same thing in the business world where I mean the, the example of like hey we got to grow and so the, the aggressive leader the overly aggressive the hyper aggressive leader will grow too fast and all of a sudden has overhead that's too much and can't afford to go on but at the same time you get a you get a company that's not that's not aggressive enough and they should be entering another another line of operation they should be putting they should be entering another market you know uh, we were talking about this morning while we were working out block bu- blockbuster and blackberry right blockbuster and blackberry who would have thought that blockbuster which was there was a blockbuster on every street corner and there was a block blackberry in everyone's pocket and they owned something like 80 something percent of the market share How, they're done now are you telling me that someone that was default aggressive would have said you know what we need to figure out how to you know what these these movies might be able to come on the internet in fact there's streaming video let's get into that market and of course they would have had the capital they would have had the infrastructure they would have had the people and and they could have they would have been been able to make that happen they had relationships with 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 the um with the big Hollywood studios, right? They were getting sent those movies. They had relationships. They could have done that, but they were sitting there going, "Hey, we're, you're going to come rent these videos for four ninety nine? You got to get that VHS tape up in here, right? <laughs> That's the way it's got to be." Mm-hmm. And same thing with BlackBerry. They're thinking, "Well, no one's going to leave us because we got the little thing with the keyboard on it, and we're set." And and meanwhile, 
they're, they're, they're both done, done. Lack of aggressive, lack of foresight, lack of planning. And, and for me, it's really just lack of being aggressive, aggressively looking around. Now we could go the other way and we could look at, look at companies that put so much capital out there that they run out of money and they go, they go down too. So what do you have to do? You have to balance. You have to balance. That's what you have to do. Uh, you know, one more thing. I think we do one more thing from this, from this book. Um, just you and it's a short short little piece we were talking about earlier and it kind of relates to what and I think the reason we were talking about because it it was kind of related in the disease of victory Um, you had that little chunk again we do the we do the applications of business so people can see really directly how these principles in combat and the principle correlates to the civilian sector but you had a good one just a couple paragraphs on uh, 84 about your kind of a stereotypical fired up extreme ownership boss that's going to come in there and make stuff happen. I thought this was a good one. Go. I've read a lot about Patton, the executive vice president said with pride, referring to General George S. Patton Jr., the famous U.S. Army general whose exploits in World War II were legendary. I love that you referenced Patton in your presentation. I want exactly the kind of discipline organization around here that Patton expected. We need people who carry out orders, not question them. I could tell right away that the executive vice president had no previous military experience. He clearly misunderstood how effective leaders in the military led their teams. It was not through rigid authoritarianism. Do this because I said so, or you'll be punished. Sure, there were those in the military who tried to lead like that, but it was never effective. So there you go. And I know you and I both and, and the rest of the team has dealt with guys that they, they have that vision of this military leadership. And usually it's guys that weren't in the military. And, you know, I like to draw a line and maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong about this. I think, well, and, and from what I know from military history, when you go back to conscripts, when you when you get to the conscripts, those guys are beaten until they are doing what they you know what they're told to do. I mean, we've we've covered some great examples of that on this podcast of situations where it's like, oh, you know what, you know how we're going to lead? We're going to lead through tyranny, and we're going to lead through punishment, and we're going to lead through rigid discipline, rigid discipline. Which obviously everyone knows I'm a fan of discipline, but when you're leading guys and the reason that they're following your orders is because they fear being beaten or fear being shot then shot by you you know punished by you uh, if that's why they're again it's the same situation where if that's why they're doing it you're never gonna get the true optimal work and effort out of those people ever and even from from history I mean if you read Alexander the Great right or or Julius Caesar who's a great example I and mean, they had conscripts but uh, his men loved him and, and admired him and, and held him in tremendous regard because he he rewarded them he gave them credit he he explained why I mean he, yeah. he was he was a guy who was always put himself at the forefront uh, of uh, of where the, the fighting was and uh, you know much more so than just a political leader like many of the, the Roman uh, the Roman yeah. leaders so yeah. just a, a phenomenal leader on the battlefield and and so even even then you're, yeah. you're yeah. the most effective leaders are always going to be they're always going to try to get the team on board with the mission help them understand why they're doing it put it put a greater purpose in their mind and i think so often as you said before you know a leader a leader like that this was this was an aggressive leader great you know great person who wanted to dominate the universe and and make things happen love extreme ownership and yet is 
is struggling to see that because they think they're leading like you would lead. They look at <laughs> they look at a picture of Jocko and like this is what Jocko would do is just crush everyone and tell them to do it because I said and, and as you've explained it, it doesn't work yeah. it doesn't work that way it's never effective and that's why uh, that's why I'm you know, I'm proud of this book and I think it can be so useful to leaders to see you can't do that if you do that you're not ever going to be as successful as you could be if you actually uh, get the team on board explain why to them and and, and tie, tie that to the bigger purpose of of what you're trying to accomplish in the world yeah yeah I think that's uh, all true I think the book will be helpful to people um, so yeah dichotomy leadership it's coming out September 25th if you want to if you want to get some you can get some of that we got some Q&A we got some questions to discuss here I'll just jump right into it. Number one, what are th- speaking of that? This is this is flowing together quite nicely. Question number one: What are things to look for when you're debating whether to raise your voice or yell due to those under you being lazy or unmotivated? Y'all talk a lot about the importance of self-control and not just losing it, but would you say there's a time and place for raising the intensity while still being respectful towards your guys? So there you go, yelling and screaming. Get some. Sometimes you got to just drop the hammer. <laughs> Jocko uh, yelled and screamed at us all the time. Like I've 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 talked about on this, you know, I think on the podcast we certainly talk about it all the time. I mean, you know, the number of times that Jocko screamed and yelled at me, zero, yeah. zero times in all the years that we worked together, and and I know I gave him at least dozens, maybe hundreds of opportunities to want to probably done that. Uh, and he didn't do that because he realized that it wasn't effective. So uh, now listen, there, there, is, uh, there is a time where, you know, if there's a, the, a major safety issue going on and you're trying to get people's attention and you want people to cease fire uh, or you need to rally the troops where you got to raise your voice and get people's attention. Uh, and I think that's, you can't be afraid to do oh, yeah. that as a leader. There are certainly times where I say, hey, life, get, get, get those bobbies lined up over there or stuff like that. I mean, for sure. That's, is that yelling? Well, yeah, I'm definitely raising my voice and using a loud voice, but I'm not doing it whatever with anger. It's just, hey, you got to hear me. And so, and also, you know, there is times where you've got to you've got to pick up the intensity in your voice so that people realize there's something important happening, right? There's just enough. Now you don't want to yell and scream and get all crazy, but to be like, "Hey, I need vehicles here now," like that is different than, "Hey, can you get the vehicles over here now?" Like those are two different things, and you, I would react differently if I heard those two voices. So yes, now to go, I get those vehicles over here now. No, well now we're creating a whole panic situation. But that that's a great point too, right? And it's it's the kind of you know never cry wolf, uh, you know story. So when when you're if you're yelling all the time, I need those vehicles over here right now. When there's nothing at stake and it's no big deal and it's just a a routine (laughs) movement, you know, then when you do that and you really need it. Uh, then no one's paying attention. They think, oh, it's just Leif yelling again into the, the radio. Yeah. So so I think that's another reason why uh, I, I actually have seen Jocko raise his voice on one occasion. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when there was a, a, a serious issue that needed to be addressed and you needed to get uh, the, the person's attention to show just how serious of a situation it was, and it got everybody's attention. Yeah. It got everybody's attention right away because you never did that. And, and when you did do it, it was like, oh, man. Yeah. I, and I was always tell that to leaders like being on the radio, and this goes for being in a meeting, right? If you go to a meeting, if you're in charge of a meeting and you talk the whole time and then you have something important to, the, to say at the end, well, that's great, but it's not as impactful as when you say very few things during the meeting and, and then at the end you say, hey, guys, listen up. 
here's what's going on with this and everyone everyone pays attention so I've said this before the less you talk the more people listen and that goes true here the more you yell the less people listen and it takes away the opportunity if you ever do have to yell it's gonna have zero impact so my blanket statement is you should hardly ever have to raise your voice and it should just barely ever happen next question it's a long one can you explain more how you managed working with the local Iraqi troops general Mattis who I hold in the highest esteem esteem said something to the effect that if you are doing anything that negatively impacts relations with allied forces you are of more use to the enemy than you are to the, your team this makes it quite obvious that he believes that full cooperation with allied forces is key to attaining victory it is a well-established fact that most of the Iraqi forces were incompetent to the point of posing danger to US troops so what steps did you take to ensure success when working with them well obviously relations with your allies are critical it's cover move right you got to work together as a team and and if you've got if you're working against each other that's absolutely catastrophic Uh, I, I think for us with Iraqi troops you know Again, we, we talked about how uh, that was liberating, right? For, for you know, the, the big pushback was always like, we want to do just SEAL, unilateral operations, we call it just SEALs or just Americans, uh, you know, just like NATO ally forces and, um, and not work with, with uh, Iraqi troops. And, you know, if, when you said that right away, Tasking Bruce, listen, don't even put up a concept of operations brief, a CONOPS, we call it, which is the approval for the plan that doesn't have Iraqi uh, troops on it. Okay, got it. We're going to have to figure out a way to make that happen. So that was the line was drawn. We knew we had to do that. And we knew it was also important. I mean, because you explained that we talked about it. We we thought through that. Um, But obviously, we had to take some steps to mitigate that. So I think there were uh, there were again, this is the dichotomy. It's it's, you got to be balanced. There were I saw units who thought um, and we gave some examples, uh, even extreme ownership, certainly. Um, and we talk about regularly about where you, you see a unit that would take two or four Americans and a bunch of Iraqis and try to go in a really bad area. You're like, man, you're, you're not going to be able to count on those Iraqis in the middle of a gunfight when they're overwhelmed. You better have enough Americans there to have your back. So, so they were asking too much of, of the Iraqis. And then there were other units that didn't want to do, you know, didn't want to have any Iraqis with them, didn't want to have any relationships with them. Uh, and I had some stern talking to, you know, talk, talking to some of my guys who wouldn't, weren't, weren't treating Iraqi soldiers with respect. I threatened one of my guys who was going to have to go sleep in the Iraqi soldiers' <laughs> barracks if he didn't go shake their hand. I think he was, uh, you knowing know, that time with individual them. who's a great guy, yeah. I think that was uh, the last threat you had to make to, him, to make him submit to, to doing that. He didn't that. think I was serious at first. I was like, I'm totally serious. You better fix this. So and it was, you know what? Uh, props, to, props to SF guys, MIT teams that go out there and they do. They live, they eat. Uh, you know, even even having Dakota Meyer on here, he did two meals a day out of three with with his uh, Afghan soldiers. Uh, that's that's awesome. And you know what I liked about this question was the way that that it relates to to the civilian sector, because you know what I talk about a lot. A lot of times I talk about how my relationship with my boss, regardless of who my boss was, regardless if my boss was great or my boss was horrible, my relationship was always the same. I was going to have this great, I was going to build a relationship where they trusted me, they gave me what I needed to do my job, and then they let me do my job. That's the relationship I always had with all my bosses, right? But I, I, 
that same methodology and concept can absolutely be applied to other organizations that you're supposed to work with. So whether it's the Army, whether it's the Marine Corps, whether it's the Iraqi soldiers, whether it's the MPs, whether it's the I, the uh, the Intel people, that the Intel organization that you're working with, no matter what the organization, you can build a relationship. Again, might you love that organization? No, you might not. And where I see this all the time, it, well, we see it all the time now, is with businesses. Because guess what? There's no business that's standalone. I should say there's very few that are completely vertically integrated businesses. I mean, like an origin, right? We don't. We we're pretty vertically integrated, but guess what? We don't grow the cotton. Like we don't do that. We don't grow cotton. But guess what? We have a good relationship with the people that grow cotton. We have a good relationship with the people that stain the cotton or sorry, dye the cotton. So we build those relationships with those other people. Now, I work with businesses where there's a supplier that they don't like. So guess what? They form a hostile relationship with this whole company, a whole company. What good does that do them? It doesn't do them any good at all. What it means is they have no personal relationships. They they form that antagonistic relationship with a whole other organization, and it's almost impossible to overcome. So now this is something where if you don't explain that culture throughout your team, they're going to treat that other team horribly. And so if you're waiting on supplies, if you're on a construction site and you're waiting for materials to be delivered and you don't have a good relationship with the people that deliver the drywall, and now the drywall's run late for whatever reason, and you call you you fly off the handle or whatever you're you're not going to get that drywall any earlier it's not <laughs> happening have you ever you you know when i call customer service right customer service i learned this when i was working for the, for the admiral working for the admiral's aid i'd call up we we traveled a lot and i'd have to call up whatever delta or american whoever and i'd be trying to get whatever seats on an aircraft or something or a flight that was full whatever get him an upgrade whatever and you know i'd say hey how you doing that's always i always start off with the with the because they're going american airline how can i help you and they're mad right they're just mad to start with <laughs> how like, dare you out call of the me. gate <laughs> out of the gate they're mad whatever you know airline whatever re- car rental service whatever restaurant like people are just mad they don't they're, care they're they're yeah. mad they don't know who you are well they actually they've just talked to probably you know the last 25 people have screamed and yelled screamed and yelled at them and it's <laughs> awful so you know you you call them and say hey how's it going and you know i always i had little i had little micro jokes that i would make with the airlines that i used with all of them all the time mm-hmm. but one of them was i'd say They'd say, "Well, do you need to sit? Do you need to sit next to your boss?" And I'd say, "You know what? I'd honestly appreciate it if you put me as far away from it." And they'd laugh, and then they'd try and hook me up, even though my boss was a great guy, and I'd sit with him all day. But just it was a funny thing, and it it, it humanized me with them. They thought I was some poor, sorry bastard that had to travel with his boss, and then they were trying to take care of me. It was like awesome. So I would get sure. the hookups. I remember one time I went up and I I like had a conversation on the phone with someone. And then, of course, this is different because it was live, but I had a conversation. They're like, no, I can't get you on that flight. And then I went up to the counter, and I was like, hey, how you doing? I'm trying to get me and my boss and it, it, on this flight, and we're trying to get there. And, and he's like, this girl's like, well, we're, you know, do you need to go today? I'm like, well, look, if we don't get there, here's the deal. If you can just get my boss on, that's great. If, if neither one of us get, get on this flight, it's been nice knowing you because I'm screwed and she just started laughing and again humanized it and then it's like all of a sudden she's like oh guess what we're gonna we're gonna bump some of these or whatever and she's making room and we're on the flight Mm -hmm. so 
don't develop this antagonistic relationship with another organization with Iraqi soldiers like is it great working with Iraqi soldiers no it sucks it's hard but guess what that's what we have to do and I'll tell you something else strategically the Iraqi soldiers that are descendants of the guys that we train I mean maybe not I'm saying training or or training descendants right the guys that we trained trained guys who just went and fought back and got Ramadi back from Isis and got Mazul back from Isis those are the guys that went in there and did the bulk of the fighting did they get supported by Americans yes did Americans do a kick-ass job of doing massive fire support yes but the guys that were moving from street to street those were majority Iraqi soldiers did they have special ops guys with them yes but it was a majority of the people that were moving through the streets were Iraqi soldiers and there's no way possible that wouldn't have happened if American coalition forces over the last whatever it was 10 years 12 years would have taken those guys and made them work and done the the type of partner missions that we did with them so it was and when I say again when I say we I'm not talking about us the the seal teams I'm talking about everyone everyone made this concerted effort and it ended up being a great call because when those guys went out to to finally have to fight to take these cities back they were able to do it not totally by themselves but they were able to do it they did it and that's a vast improvement if we would have sent if we would have sent the Iraqi troops as they were when we were in Ramadi into Mosul they would have gotten decimated so it's a credit to the US military it's a credit to the Iraqi military that they have now gotten up to speed where they can push forward and it's a credit to the US military and other coalition forces that worked with them to get them up to speed and what that all boils back to is forming relationships with the people that you are dependent on not just the people but the organizations that's all I'm saying yeah I think they we learned the lesson it's it's let's do uh, let's use them for their strengths and and that's what we learned in Ramadi uh, we, we put them in situations where they could succeed uh, we took enough Americans where we could actually succeed and and, and, and help them succeed and uh, and of course we put some uh, you know some efforts to mitigate rest too with with uh, we always had armed guys you always had guys looking around we always would presented a you know a hard target if one of those guys decided that they wanted to you know start batting for the other team and uh, you know we were in a position to, to handle those problems and we never had any issues as a result but that's that's what you have to do is it's, it's all about building coalitions and and, and, and using people's strengths uh, and complementing those strengths and working together as a team it's, it's cover move if you don't do that you're gonna you're gonna fail yeah and to all you people at the airlines thank you Thank you for taking care of me over the years. Appreciate it. Next question. Jocko, Leif, and Echo. <laughs> Your opinion has been solicited on this leadership question right here. So we'll cool. see how that works out. A good leader ensures his team understands what their goals are and why they are performing tasks. But how do you balance doing this with not being the leader that talks so much that the team stops listening? We, did we just cover this for a long period of time? Pretty much. We did, didn't we? I guess we can leave it at this. Echo, do you agree with what we said earlier, or do you have a different opinion about talking too much? And mind you, you've said a lot today, so don't be, just, you know. Don't get all Don't nuts. get crazy I over here, you. or yeah. we'll stop listening. <laughs> mm-hmm. The guy who talks too much. No. Yeah, less is more, 100%. There you go. I agree. There you go. I like it. I, I will say it musters uh, when echoes uh, echoes words to the audience. Um, 
He always gives an epic speech. With uh, have have solicited probably the greatest applause of everyone out sure. there. Yeah, yeah, man. See, Case I guess point. to dig in this a little bit of how to balance that with with being a a, a leader that talks too much. I think you've got to pay attention to what the reactions are you're getting from people, right? Yeah. You've got to pay attention to the reactions you're getting from people. If the people are not totally uh, actively listening to you, right? Yeah. If they're not actively listening to you, if they're taking notes, if they're looking at their phone, or what, not taking notes, but if they're looking at their phone or whatever, then you're, you're talking too much. Keep it short, keep it concise, and people will listen to you more. Also that... Um when you say you got to pay attention to yourself, that's like a deep one. It's like you just said it really simply, like, oh, hey, just pay attention to yourself. I mean, you didn't say it like that, but that's mm-hmm. what it felt mm-hmm. like. That's the hardest part right there because a lot of times, like, hey, me and Leif are talking and Leif starts looking at his phone. I'm not thinking, hey, I'm talking too much. I'm saying what I'm saying is not interesting enough. So I need so I need to say some more cool oh. stuff or I need to be more of this or more of that because I'm losing them kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Like if I'm losing you, the intuitive thought is not to – to completely disconnect and stop talking. That's not the intuitive thought. See what I'm saying? When you're yeah. in a situation, yeah. so you got to pay attention to that kind of stuff on yourself. Jocko does this all the time. <laughs> what do I do? He like busts his phone out and starts, oh, starts yeah. uh, answering oh, yeah. emails or whatever. Actually, yeah. you know what? Like, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I guess our conversation's I, you done. Know, you know, yeah. I do that to yeah. Dean and <laughs> Dean Lister. So Dean... Dean is oh, Jack. Dean's it's the really important stuff we're talking about here. He's like, eh. yeah, no. What yeah. Dean does though is he it, it makes him mad, right? He's yeah. got the he's got the pet peeve. <laughs> so Dean will be telling something, and so you're doing it on purpose weird. to get under his skin. So, so, uh, no. Sometimes he's saying some rambling stuff, right? Sure. And I'm I've got stuff going on. Dean, come on, I know you're listening to this, bro. But sometimes he'll be saying something to me, and all of a sudden I'll like. I'll like look around I'll be, and and now I realize I'll just be watching people do jujitsu because we're normally on the mat when this happens mm-hmm. So he's telling me something like look him in the eyes and he's like, you know in the ancient blah 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 <laughs> <laughs> He'll be telling me about the Peloponnesian war or something or whatever and and as I'm listening to him I'll kind of look and I'll like start looking at someone that's training or looking at something and he'll he'll like attack me <laughs> He went through a period where he would just attack me uh-huh. and like take me down and just start you know going psycho on me so yeah. that got me tuned up that got me tuned up where I try and give Dean some more attention yeah I, I like that, that yeah Dean, exactly. I think that's uh, I think that's a good because that's what you feel like yeah. like when he starts doing that sort of the bra I see what you're doing yeah. you know well the thing is though and I think you're in the same boat Leif where I know you kind of know now like in everyday life with other people you might think I mean intuitively anyway like oh I'm losing him or whatever but you can tell with him if he starts doing that stuff you're like okay I need He's to either stop yeah. or yeah move on or something but it's only because you know for me I'm always like listen if you can give me 35 more seconds we'll be done with this and then you can move on and do whatever you need to uh, okay. yeah. I will say that's a bad characteristic that I have where I can do that sometimes I'm done listening to you <laughs> so wrap it up efficiency yeah. all the time <laughs> yeah yeah, discipline time management system alright next question for Leif this oh, is kind of a heavy one you know what <sighs> alright Leif in and out burger or what a burger, dude! <laughs> I do not want to go there, man. That is uh, that is too much. That's like double rainbow, too it's much, too right much, there, man. <laughs> this is. Uh, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you. Look, obviously, I'm from Texas. Water burgers are all over the place, and water burgers are awesome. You, you yeah. can't go wrong with water burger. Um, 
in and out is uh, is pretty tough to beat, though. It's uh, there's something special about the in and out. I used to have um, you know over in Pacific Beach, I had a storage unit over there, and there's like my storage unit was like right the up burger? the hill. <laughs> Those are good burgers, dude. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, my storage unit was it, it would like kick the exhaust like right back up into the it, so so like the exhaust oh. is blasting oh, in your God. face you oh, know yeah, from yeah, like yeah. twenty five yards thirty yards away yeah. as I'm like there at my storage unit unloading surfboards or whatever and I was like double double we're getting some double double so yeah in and outs are awesome I, like it's it's tough to beat I'm a huge fan of in and out I will say this though. Where's the meat, man? Come on, those burgers. You, well, you got to put the, the, what a burger. You got a lot more more patty to yeah, it. Yeah, well, so. apparently you're not ordering the triple triple. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need. Style. Quadruple, quadruple. Yeah, That's you what we're just going get for after it. My my kids after they would cut weight for wrestling during wrestling season. I spent more money at In and Out Burger during wrestling season because after they cut weight and then they wrestle all day and then you're going home and all they want to do is go to In and Out Burger, In and Out Burger, In and Out Burger. Yeah, see. Cutting weight for me is the very. I mean, playing football is like, man, you want to be as big and fat yeah. as possible. Can be yeah, it's just crush food. Yeah, it is. Check. All right. Speaking of, well, I guess speaking of combat sports. Next question six. This is a jujitsu question. Should instructors not teach white belts? AKA Leif Bab and David Burke and JP Denell. That's cold blooded. It's a good deal, dude. That is good deal, Dave. <laughs> Should instructors not teach white belts certain techniques? Or should why they shouldn't do them be explained but still expose the white belts to techniques so that the white belts recognize them? So there's some techniques that you don't get taught very often as a white belt. For instance, a heel hook. I believe that it is good to not teach people, teach white belts to do heel hooks. Because, for example, heel hooks can be very dangerous. The reason that they're dangerous is because they don't hurt a lot before they injure you. And so white belts, who are by nature completely insane and going crazy and, and going nuts, and so when they get a hold of something, they just go as hard as they can. And by the way, they're usually going against a white belt. That's the only reason they're getting anything on them, because they're going against a white belt. And that other white belt's going completely insane, and he's not going to tap. And so what happens? You get the triple Triple Lindy, right? Triple ACL, MCL, PCL tear. Game over. Yeah. This guy's never trained in jiu-jitsu again. Or this guy's not trained in jiu-jitsu for two years or whatever. Mm-hmm. So is it smart to not teach them? Yes, it is. However, dichotomy, balance, should you just never show them what they are? No, you should you should explain to them, hey, this is what the move is. This is this is why we don't teach them. The other thing that can, this is why we don't teach them because you can get hurt, and when you get a little bit more advanced and you learn to relax a little bit more, we'll teach you some of these these techniques that are slightly more dangerous. Dean always freaks out because you saying that a heel hook is more dangerous than a than a Kimura. I mean. If you ask me whether I want to have somebody just go berserk on a Kimura on me or a heel hook, I'd probably pick the heel hook, right? Because <laughs> then you mm-hmm. you still have shoulder mobility. Whereas Kimura, that's that's just if someone goes nuts on a Kimura and just rips your arm your shoulder apart, mm-hmm. what would you rather have? The heel hook for sure. Yeah, I'm thinking it's heel hook all day long. Yeah. So, but for some reason, that's a kind of a rough choice there. <laughs> that is a rough choice. That is a rough choice. Yeah. That's not a choice you want to be making because either one of them's not good. But I think 
you can do a better job of replacing the knee and getting the knee squared away than you can the shoulder. There's the no, the shoulder's tough. But for some reason, the Kimura is everyone. You're, you're learning Kimura day one, right? Yeah. Day three, you're learning yeah. Kimura. Yeah. And you could definitely trash someone's shoulder. Yeah. But it hurts. It does yeah. hurt. Big and that's time. beneficial. Yeah, and you, the shoulder's going to have way more flexibility than your literal, your knee twisting yeah. joint You're like that's that you can't be like hey i'm fl-. unless you get some jo- yeah, double jointed person yeah, <laughs> your knees a bone exactly right <laughs> shoulder you got guys who can do shoulder you know there's varying levels of True. shoulder flexibility True. and then that also goes for like the pain tolerance as well knees less way less from from a white belt perspective though there's so much to to learn i mean it's it, you yeah. know and the more i train the more i realize how little i actually know <laughs> and how much more there is that I mean, why? I would, I would, I w- I'd rather focus on, you know, uh, on, on the more, uh, the more foundational aspects of yeah. the game, and, and, and until I can get those a little bit better. I, I think, think that's that makes a lot of sense to me. I think you might be the bull white belt right now of the world. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in the in the navy, the ensign, which is the lowest ranking ensign at a ship or a SEAL team, he gets called the bull ensign, which means he's been the junior guy for the longest amount of time. Yeah. And you've been training since you for quite some. Would you? Well, you started training with me in 2005, right? Yep. Didn't you train before me with Fabio? I trained a few times. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've been training since 03, 04. It's been a long time, <laughs> bro. But most of that that's time, 14 years. Most of that 14 years, uh, I'd say I've been seriously training for you know probably probably like back at it you know pretty consistently um, you know multiple times a week for. Year and a half. Okay, so you're years, you're yeah. in the zone. You're in the zone. You be getting that blue belt at some point. Todd White down in Texas, <laughs> gonna, gonna crack it out. Possibly. I don't know. Maybe you're not ready maybe, though. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm, Todd White. Todd White. I'm definitely not ready. He's looking you at you, going, "No, you got nothing. You got nothing." <laughs> Check. So yeah, that's I think the deal. Same thing with same thing. Uh, the other problem with teaching a person, for instance, heel hooks is then they think that that's the solution to the guard. Mm. And it's not the solution to the guard. It's a solution to the guard. Mm. It's one possible, one 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 small possible one solution. Many. Sure. There's many, many more. And there's others, as you said, Leif, that are more fundamental. So it's that's my, that's my answer. Yeah, that thing, um, how you say that? Like, let them know what it is. Yeah. And w- when you consider an actual typical white belt class, the hill is probably not going to be introduced in yeah. any significant capacity yeah. at all. Like, no one's going to choose to spend time in a white, right, be- right, right. white belt class to teach a hill. Yeah. It typically is not going to happen. But, like, the control thing, right? Like, you know, you get a, even a, a good blue belt who's been in for a long time, purple up, purple belt and up, they're going to know the control on a heel hook. Like, if I, you know, a purple belt does a heel hook on you, the risk of you getting injured unless you don't tap or something like that mm-hmm. is pretty low it's going to be pretty low because they know that control of just their whole body in and general and you know you should tap exactly right yes you know, so the white belt they don't even have control <laughs> very important they don't have control or they have l- a lot less control in everything by the way there's even, a strong possibility they have zero control yeah, very, very strong very strong <laughs> but that's with everything like even on a defending a takedown or defending it's like so out of control I, as a blue belt I heel hooked a friend of mine and I hurt him and 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 I didn't I, it wasn't even he was he was a, a he was a no nothing right and we're going and I just started learning heel hooks and I put a heel hook on him 
and we were overseas and I put a heel hook on him and he wasn't tapping and I was kind of like oh that's weird you know why isn't he tapping so I went a little bit harder and then all of a sudden there was a little pop and I let go and I was like ooh. <laughs> and yeah but you know he was a seal yeah. and so he was like oh this isn't gonna work on me right that doesn't I hurt feel it, yeah. and all of a sudden so I I wasn't going nuts because I like I said I was a blue belt I was in pretty good control but even I didn't realize at that time oh this will injure him yeah. before it will cause pain right. which is a bad thing to have a yeah bad thing to have so yeah these kids I mean these guys if they're no one has control over anything by the way any any of their moves and they're doing heel hooks as a normal thing <laughs> like oh yeah we do we got taught this and stuff and it's effective you know like yeah. a lot of submissions and heel hooks and a lot of foot locks are one of those ones where you to gain the position to to go for that submission, you have to work a lot less than like an arm bar yeah. where you have to actually yeah. pass someone's guard and, you know, get it even side control. But a lot of times get to the, you know, you got to yeah. work more to get into the position with heel hooks. Not, li- not so much like that. Yeah. So you can, if you, you know, throw it at him. yeah, you can just throw it out there and you, you throw in the lack of control. Yeah, man. So you in, increase the chance for injury for sure. All right. Next question. I am a 66-year-old police chief and CrossFit athlete. Is your muster doable for me? Absolutely. Yeah. There'll be there'll be plenty of people uh, who are in your age group, and um, there's uh, no question that uh, you should come and, and, and join us for muster. Get after it. If you're you're police chief, you're CrossFit athlete, uh, you can more more than get after it with us. The, the 445 Club workouts are uh, voluntary. Uh, we usually have. I mean, we probably have what. You know, 80, 85% yeah. participation. I mean, it's massive. Uh, but they're, they're designed so that really anybody can do it. Yeah. We have people with top-level athletes down to, you know, folks who look like they probably hadn't been in the gym a whole lot yeah. in the last well, few we years, had, but they wanted to just get started again. So. I, I remember one guy that was, I'm heading in for double knee surgery in a week. And so I'm just, and he was an older guy, you know, that had been out of the gym for a bit. And he was out there, like you said, that the, the workouts are scalable to the individual that's participating in the in the event and so we get all every level you can come to the muster in any literally in any physical condition you can come to the muster and you can you can get after it with us next question I find meetings of greater than or equal to eight people far less productive than smaller groups even with with a structured action oriented agenda is there a maximum amount of people you'd involve in a strategic or tactical planning group I don't think I don't think there is a maximum amount I think it just has to be controlled and you've got to have you've got to have some decentralized command where people understand if there's just a bunch of people at a meeting and everyone's kind of speaking in in turn um, and, and talking over each other, you're not going to get anything done. So you got to have. There's got to be one leader who's running that. There's got to be some, some you know, some other uh, uh, subordinate leaders that, uh, and and one person has got to drive that meeting and make sure that when someone starts going in down a rabbit hole, okay, you guys have a sidebar conversation uh, afterward. Let's keep this meeting focused, and let's and ultimately the, a decision maker who can focus the team on a single course of action, get everybody behind them. I, I agree, and there's certainly times where you can bring too many people in to try and figure something out. I mean, that can certainly happen. And we, we have the good idea fairies that keep coming around with their good ideas and saying, oh, what if we did this? And what if we did that? There's also an interesting dynamic that you just pointed out that ties into a question that we had earlier or something that we were talking about earlier, which is, okay, so let's say we have a meeting and there's 15 people in that meeting. 
if the leader of that meeting then will say steps down into the position of being the the director of the meeting itself guess what he's doing the whole time he's talking he's pulling things he's get and what he's doing while he's doing that is he's getting in the weeds of what's going on so as he's getting in the weeds of what's going on he's losing the strategic vision and so if there's 20 people in a meeting and you as the leader are going okay what do you think what do you think what do you think and hey no let's get it refocused when you're doing all that traffic copping you're actually losing your strategic altitude. You're not gonna be able to see and make a good, clear decision. So if there's 30, 40, 50 people in a meeting, and you as the leader get down in the weeds and get down in the trenches and you start throwing down with everyone, well, it's not gonna take very long. Well, you're just you're just one of the troops and you don't see anything. Whereas if you let, let one of the other leaders, let one of the subordinate leaders, let them step up, let them start to do their thing, let them do the direction of the meeting. And you might even tell them, hey, run this meeting. I would do that, I'd be like, hey, you run this meeting. And then you let them get in there in the trenches and let them try and sort out ideas and they, their mind gets filled with a bunch of crap. And meanwhile, you're in the meeting, you're just not running it. So there's a big difference between running the meeting and overseeing the meeting or being in the meeting or being the leading leader of a meeting. So if we're going through a kill house or if we're, we're going if we're going through a kill house, that's a good example, which is the, you know the, the building with a bunch of rooms in it. If as the leader, you don't say, hey, I'm gonna run this kill house. I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna direct the movement through the kill house. Because then guess what you're doing? You're directing the movement through the kill house. What you want to do is take a step back and say, hey, you third fourth fifth in the chain of command you run this kill house you run the train and now that guy goes okay cool i got it and now while he's running the train doing the work you're step back at altitude you can see what's going on you can hear the frustration you can hear shots fired you know where people are moving then you become you're the real leader so same thing in a meeting if the dynamics of the meeting are you get more than 10 people 15 people and what you're doing is you're down there directing traffic it's going to be really problematic for you if you have a meeting with 15 or 20 people and you tell someone else to direct the meeting and run the meeting and you take a step up and you simply observe, you're going to have a better time feeling like the meeting is effective. And you will get the benefit of hearing all these different voices, which is good, which is good to hear all these different opinions and voices and be able to pick through and sort through. And that's going to give you more benefit than, uh, you know what? I get there's too much going on in this meeting only give me two people and we'll make the decisions well there's some people number number the, the sixth person that person had a good input right the 12th person might have had some good input so again is there balance yes are there certain decisions that you kind of need to take and really dive down in with a small group absolutely but is it good sometimes to let things air out and let someone run a meeting and you listen and you learn kind of what the overall atmospherics of the situation are Absolutely, that's my answer. I think it's a great one. It helps people. It helps people listen to you as well, right? I mean, when if if you're the boss and you're just sitting back and you're not saying anything, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Hey guys, we're getting way off topic here. This is what we need to do. Here's the direction we need to go." Got it. Everyone's yep. back on track. Whereas if you're in the middle of it, then yeah, people are just automatically you know kind of doing their. I'm thing. I'm sure we've said back. this before, and I know we talked about it earlier too. But like when I would say something on the radio and tasking a bruiser. When I would say like a legitimate thing, man, it would happen. If I got on and said, everyone get to building 34 now, people would go. 
And I, one of my favorite things to do, one of my favorite conversations to have on the radio with, with either you or Stoner was, like I remember you'd be like, you'd say, hey Jocko, we got another mover where I wanna take down building 34. And I'd come up and go, do it. That was all I'd ever said, be like, do it. And I'd just like go, because I'm not trying to talk, right? I got these guys got their situations handled. Hey, he's going outside of something that we planned. Hey Jock, I wanna build a move to building 34 and take that thing down. Do it. Nah, well why do you wanna do that? You know why he wants to do it? Cause he's got a good reason. He's not asking me that cause it's a fantasy that he thinks it's gonna be cool. No, there's a reason. And he'll explain that to me later. Mm-hmm. And if it was something where he's like, I wanna, you know, start doing jumping jacks out here then I might ask why because that doesn't make much sense to me but to say hey we're gonna, t- we're gonna hit building 34 as well what if, if we Do were it. doing burpees would uh, would that make more sense that that makes a little more sense <laughs> <laughs> a little more sense than jumping jacks mm-hmm. now, look that that absolutely worked it worked for us when you when you said something over the radio like got it we're good like it, it, it decision made everyone's on board and uh, I, I think it's it's something that um, You've got to you've, you've got to focus on what like when a leader talks it should matter and and, and I think you can be you got to be really careful about that uh, and I've certainly been a, a chief violator of that of like going off in too dip, too many different directions but um, that, that you did extremely well tasking a bruiser and it works uh, and every leader should be very cognizant of that yeah the less you talk the more people listen all right next question in a in a middle management position, what's the best way to support the company and leadership you work for while still showing your fellow workers they are supported and appreciated? I work in surgery at a large hospital within an even larger corporation. This is one of those things and I remember saying, I'm sure I got this from Hackworth, but it's one of those things that I've said so many times I actually probably forget to even give credit to Hackworth but you know when problems little problems would arise up the chain of command and I'd be like everyone hates the echelon of command above them right that's the way it is like and, and that's just the way it is that's the way it is it's always they don't get it it's always they don't understand unless you get somebody that really knows how to explain and communicate down the chain of command so that everyone understands why they're doing what they're doing that's what this is that's exactly what this is like if, what's the best way to support the company and leadership? It's to take what the company and the leadership of the company says and translate it to the troops in a way that they understand and that means something to them, right? So you go to a big meeting and, you know, like let's say an all-hands meeting for a company and and the CEO is saying, hey, we made, you know, we made $87 million last year profit. And if all the frontline troops are in there, they're like, well, well that's cool. But I didn't see any of that, that, re- to me? I see yeah. that reflected in my paycheck. <laughs> By the way, you gave me a $4 raise over the last three years. How about some of that $87 million kick it down to the people? So that's problematic because we aren't explaining, hey, that's that literally that statement right there will actually make people mad. The, the, the CEO is thinking, Everyone's gonna love me because I'm telling them how profitable we are as a company. All everyone's thinking is, well, then why can't you afford to buy me that piece of gear that we need on the front lines? What's your problem? Th- that's so you actually think you're helping, but you're actually hurting. Unless you can explain to people, look, we made this much profit. Here's how it's gonna benefit us as a company and you as a frontline troop. By us making this much money, it means we can grow these areas. It means we can bring on more people. That means everyone in this room right now, in the next three years, you're gonna have an opportunity to be in a leadership position. 
That's what I'm talking about. That's why we're trying to grow. That's why we're trying to do better. By the way, as we this is snowballing even more because now we're putting more money into advertising. We've got a whole advertising campaign that's going out. We've invested a bunch of money in that, and it's going to bring us more business. And that means the jobs that you think might not be stable, your job, if you don't think it's stable, it just got stable because we have the capital to get this machine moving even faster. So when you do that, when you explain to the troops why something's happening, it makes them understand, and it shows your people, hey, you're supporting. Are there times where you should push back? Yes, there are. And if something makes no sense whatsoever, you should raise your hand and say, hey, let, let me go, let me run this up the chain of command. Let me run this up the chain of command and explain why this isn't a good idea. And that way you can go, and when you get the reason, because there'll be a reason, and it might not be the best reason, but it'll be a reason, and you go back to the troops and say, hey, here's why this is going on. This is what's happening. This is the decision they made. And you know what? We're going to do our best to execute it because that's what we do. We make things happen. We're going to get it done. Boom. And we got a great, we've got a great uh, depiction of that in, in the, the, talking about being humble, not passive, and pushing back where it matters uh, in the dichotomy leadership. Uh, that's, uh, that whole section is talking exactly about that. It's a very hard thing you know, for people. And that, the, the basis of this question, though, is the us versus them, right? Front lines versus corporate headquarters. Uh, and, and you've got to defeat that. If you're a good leader, you've got to recognize, look, we're all on the same team. Uh, we can't do what we need to do without having the support and uh, you know, the resources and the approvals of plans uh, from the uh, corporate headquarters. You know, and, and at corporate headquarters, it oftentimes, so not only are, is there frustration up the chain, there's also frustration down the chain. You hear that all the time, like, well, the front lines, they don't really get it. They don't get it over there. Well, listen, front, the front lines is, is where the, the actual mission gets won or lost. Yeah. So uh, you, you've got to- You might want to have them on board with the program. Exactly, so you got to make sure that, you know, that it's got to, if you want a successful team, you, you can't have us versus him. Everybody's get on board for the big win. Get on board for the big win. <laughs> yeah, well, the full metal jacket, right? What's your problem, son? Why don't you get on board for the big win? And and you think, oh, well, if I'm the general and I'm telling this young guy that's got a peace sign on his helmet that represents the dichotomy, maybe that's where I learned the word dichotomy from, that represents the dichotomy of, what does he say, the dichotomy I think of he, man. I think he says the duality the of duality man. The duality of man, yeah, you're right. That represents mm. the duality of man. Why don't you take that thing off and get on board for the big win. And that's such a great line from that movie. Join the team, son. Get on board for the big win. That's such a great line from that movie because that's exactly what we're talking about. That does absolutely nothing for that frontline soldier that goes, oh, okay, you're saying that and I'm literally burying people right now in this situation. And so for you saying that to me means nothing. In fact, it shows how completely freaking out of touch you are. And so they did a great job in that movie of representing that through one single line. Hey, why don't you just get on board for the big win? It's like, well, no. Actually, why don't you lead? How does that sound? So, communicate up and down the chain of command. Make sure people know why. And tie in why it matters to them. Next question. In extreme ownership, you talk about being close with the team, but not so close that they forget who's in charge or that the good of the team suffers. How do you overcome the isolation of leadership? What strategies did or do you employ to avoid the isolation becoming an issue? This is an example of, I'm gonna take this to the extreme. 
hey I'm not gonna be too close to my people guess what I'm not talking to them <laughs> right I'm not gonna speak to them I'm gonna I gotta maintain a distance I gotta and it's it's obviously not true it's obviously not true and I think you know the, the relationship that you and me and Seth and the that, that we all had was clearly uh, this right I wasn't alone I wasn't isolated as the leader because we were all bros and hanging out and now did it start off like that no you know I as we always talk about like I come across Hackworth style of like hey we're not gonna joke around for at least whatever six to eight weeks to make sure that these dudes are good to go and that that they understand where I'm coming from and and that's cool but once we get through that okay like then it's like open up a little bit then it's like open up a little bit more and then it's open up a little bit more so that you're not isolated at the top because not only is it important that you're not isolated that's like that's like a, a marginal thing what's more important is what I talked about earlier is if you if Leif can't come to me and say hey man hey I don't agree with this plan or more importantly hey Jocko here's what's going on with the troops right now here's what's going on with the mentality here's what's going on with the morale if he can't knock on my door and say that to me then that's a real problem because now um, you know I'm I'm in the dark on what's happening inside inside with the troops which is problematic yeah I I think it's this to me sounds like uh, I was thinking about this question and it sounds to me like uh, maybe a junior leader that was promoted up the chain because that, that's where you really feel. Like when I go from, you know, the assistant platoon commander where I'm like kind of one of the boys and I'm, you know, we're, we, we can, you know, it's kind of uh, I can kind of play interference with it with the officer in charge and the platoon commander. Now all of a sudden I get promoted. It's, you recognize instantly there's a little bit of difference. You've got to maybe kind of distance yourself slightly from where you were previously and recognize. When you took that. over Charlie platoon as the platoon commander, when did you realize that you needed to transition from being one of the boys until being the OIC and that there was that the gap was going to open up a little bit was it as soon as you took over it was pretty quick because I'd been to buds uh, and and uh, seal qualification training you know SQGR advanced training with uh, with several guys uh, and I knew these guys very well and you know I think we had a big house party hanging out you know having a good time and and uh, everybody's over at my house and all of a sudden I realized something I did all the time you know as an assistant platoon commander and all of a sudden uh, we're in at work, you know, the next week, and I gotta gotta uh, make some some tough calls, and we gotta get you know drive the standards a little bit higher where we're at, and there's some pushback, and you realize like okay, uh, when it's when it's time to give people some bad news or say hey we're not doing as good as we should, we need to fix that, and they kind of give you the like, hey bro, you know what, what are you doing Friday? You know, then it's then you're like okay I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to distance a, l- a right. little bit, but it, it, the, the isolation you should never be isolated. I think that's one thing that. You know, I remember coming into your office, and uh, I would come in and hang out all the time in your office. You know, you'd you'd come in and hang out in the platoon space. I mean, I'd come. You know, we'd we'd see each other in the gym. We like we were always trying to find a way to like hang out and talk. And and um, it was even even when you know Seth Stone was all the way across the other side of the city. I mean, I you know we'd still connect with him and talk to him on the phone and once in a while. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, I talked to him all the time on the uh, ANDVT. Yeah, you guys, little, you guys little, talk regularly, yeah. but but having, but even even me, you know, he yeah. he, we'd always when he came by, like we'd always try to try to get together and talk to each other and catch up, whether it was in the chow hall or, or uh, you know, in in the platoon space, and uh, you know, guys like I remember Tony would come in there. I'd come in, I'd walk in, and I'd see the win plan written up on Jocko's <laughs> whiteboard in Tasking at Ruser, where Tony had written down all the things that we needed to do to win in Ramadi. 
which and, were uh, pretty harsh. Yes, uh, yes. true. But probably on the on, probably on the level like Genghis Khan would certainly yeah, approve. Yeah, there was the Genghis yeah. Khan win plan, <laughs> which you know, well, hey man, but uh, it, we it were, has its merits. We were we were joking and laughing about that. This is the relationship Jocko had, you know, not only with me but with with other leaders in in the task unit, and and, uh, and I think you have to have that. I mean, you, you've got to have a you've got to have a relationship with your people. Um, you can't think that I can't talk to anyone, I can't interact with anyone. I think this you're going to be unsuccessful as a leader. Um, you know, if if uh, you try to roll that way, it's just not going to work. Yeah, I think where you might feel what might feel like a isolation, which is definitely true, and this is the burden of command, right? Like, guess what? You, you're friends with Leif, you're friends with Seth, you're friends with Tony, you're friends with these guys, but at the same time, like, oh, the burden of command is on you, and it's going to be, it's going to be you. You're going to you're going to bear that, right? In your platoon, it's like, hey, you got your assistant platoon commanders, you got your platoon chief, you got your LPO, but when something goes wrong, if something goes wrong, if you if there's a ba- if something happens on a mission and it goes bad, I'm not talking, I'm not I'm not looking at the assistant platoon commander. I'm I'm looking at you. That's the burden of command. That's so that thing yeah, that's that. There's one man that stands on the carpet, right? That's that's the way it works. And sometimes being one man, that's that's a little bit of an isolating feeling. To, and to help help you understand, that, our leading petty officer, Charlie Platoon, awesome, awesome, amazing yeah, seal. Yeah. Lo- love the guy, and uh, hopefully he can be on here one of these days <laughs> after his Navy <laughs> yeah, career. Really. His retirement comes one 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 of these days. But uh, he was. I remember we were we were up in uh, Nevada training, and uh, we took a couple of days to go snowboarding mm-hmm. which was uh, an awesome good deal <laughs> and he's like oh, we're in the van he looks around he like sees me he's like i'm not the senior guy in charge <laughs> and uh so he's yeah. screaming and laughing yeah. about how awesome it is to yes. not be the senior guy because he knows the burden of command is now with me <laughs> uh, and not with him if uh, guys get in trouble or do something stupid they shouldn't have done oh, so. yeah yeah which is while you're in tahoe guys getting in trouble and doing stuff stupid is probably a fairly likely thing to have happen. <laughs> Highly probable. <laughs> that's one of my favorite trips that I did multiple times. Yeah, so that's it, man. Build relationships, and at the same time, you are, when you're in charge, you're in charge, and there's a little bit of a, that's called the burden of command. Embrace it. And I think we've got time for one more question. Here we go. In Leif and Jocko's opinion, You've been excluded from this one, Echo Charles. It's okay. They don't want your opinion. What has changed, or what point do you find you need to emphasize more from when you wrote Extreme Ownership to now? Well, this is a softball question that I selected. (laughs) (laughs) You took all the easy ones. Well, yeah, I think the answer to this one's pretty obvious. That's why we wrote the book, Dichotomy Leadership. I mean, this is... uh, this is what we had needed to emphasize more and uh, just as you know you talked about this when we were talking about jaws too you know whether or not you know the sequel is going to be as good and you know we had we had pressure to write a book extreme ownership did very well like hey you guys should write another book we didn't want to write another book until we actually had something useful to write about that would impact leaders for the better help them be better people better leaders lead better teams uh, lead better lives and and that's what this is the dichotomy leadership answers uh, the most difficult challenges and, and obstacles that we see leaders face and, and I think that three years 
you know, one thing that uh, Extreme Ownership did for us is, I mean, it, our company blew up as a result of Echelon Front. We were able to work with so many more uh, leaders and so many more companies, and we got to see this over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, and this uh, this is capturing those those issues uh, that, that we saw uh, and then the solutions to, to solving those problems through leadership. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty evident. And I think it was cool how it revealed itself as the subject matter of the next book. I mean, we, we like you said, business blew up, yes. We were busy, we weren't really sitting there going, okay, what should the next book be about? What should the next book be about? We, we actually didn't even think, we weren't even thinking about it. And then as we started saying, hey, you know, people don't understand this as well. Hey, we, we should have added more chapters about the dichotomy. We should, and it's like over time, all of a sudden it became very, it became completely blatantly obvious that what people needed help with was this most difficult thing, which is achieving the balance of all the different dichotomies of leadership. And that's why we wrote The Dichotomy of Leadership. Get some. Get some. Right on. Well, we're just hitting that two hour mark, which means we only have two hours for Echo to talk about support. It's just right. saying, man. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You, you said Echo was excluded for that last question, but I want to know what your answer is, Echo, from uh, oh, yeah. what, what, what you've learned, what I learned. Uh, since Extreme Ownership's come out, since the podcast is launched. Okay, so the, the, the main thing that sticks out, main thing, is that is what people seem to ask you all the time, is what do I do when other people aren't taking extreme ownership? And here's the thing, when you're outside and listening, you're like, aha, I see what, you know, I, it's almost like a funny question, right? Because it's like, what, what do you call that? Like, ironic Right, kind of, where they're like, "What do you do when other people?" But it's you, the one supposed to. Anyway, so that's. But the reason that that's significant is because when you're in the situation, that's exactly what it feels like. You can't like really see it. See what I'm saying? So you gotta detach, which kind of kind of uh, sheds more, even more light on the uh, the importance of detaching, right? So it kind of feeds in it uh, into itself. But so yeah, when you're in the situation and you have to essentially take ownership when the other person should be taking ownership factually in your mind the other person hey you need to take responsibility for this that's the time you got to take responsibility of it yeah it's hard to like it's hard to really grasp that in the beginning i thought well that was pretty cool recently we got an email from a guy that's overseas running a company and he he listened to dave burke and and good me, deal, dave. yeah good deal dave and I, I think it's a great example to say, can you take ownership of the weather, right? Because the obvious answer is no, I can't take ownership of the weather. And I talked about this on that podcast is like, well, actually you can, because yeah. you can come up with contingency plans, you can come up with, you can stage your force forward closer. And so anyways, this guy in his company, it's a software type company, an implementation company, and they piggyback on a big giant, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. And that biggest company in the world, one of the biggest companies in the world, made some errors and it messed up their platform and they went to their client and said hey the platform got messed up it was the big guys they did this this and this wrong and the people were like oh well okay you know i guess and then he went home and he listened to that podcast and he went damn i screwed up because that's hey the biggest company in the world is still easier to control than the weather (laughs) right and so he went back to the company and he went back to the, his client and said, you know what? It wasn't their fault. It was our fault. It was my fault. Here's some things I'm going to put in place so that this never happens again. 
Yeah. And all of a sudden the attitude completely changes and the client is super happy and is all of his team also Because what does that do to your team when you blame when you blame the weather your team just goes? Okay, we got a permanent excuse now weather yeah. wasn't good seas were too big wind was too high cloud cover was too low Whatever the case may be you got a permanent excuse now because you can't control the weather actually wrong yeah. wrong we do control the weather. We we will set up our missions. We will set up our contingencies that no matter what the weather does, we're going to accomplish the mission. No matter yeah. what our big, whatever, what, no matter what the big platform that we rely on, no matter what happens with them, we're going to be in control. That's how we roll. Mm-hmm. Get some. That feedback was phenomenal. That was and, awesome. and to hear him, you know, say that his client was like, "I've never seen anyone handle a problem like this before." You guys have done an amazing job, and it's it's another example of how. You're you're scared to take ownership, to and take yet ownership. by taking ownership, you're you building win. trust. You you're win. building trust, and you win it when when you take ownership and you actually get the problem solved going forward. Speaking of ownership and taking ownership, maybe Echo could take ownership of you know support. Sure, be happy to how actually. to support you know sure people's right. selves selves the path. Really, that's what we're supporting the path. Right, we're yes, on the path. We Either you're on the path, or you're not on the path. All right, if you're not on the path, I'm. Well, actually, somebody even if you're posted not, a picture of just a sign that said, "Please stay, stay on, on the path." path. Yeah, <laughs> that was, was like, good. Yeah, nope. that's yep. legit. Exactly right. And I was gonna say, if you're not on the path, we're not talking to you. But if you're not on the path, I'm, I think we're talking to you equally. Mm-hmm. Maybe more so. I I want to say more so, but cool. really, if you're on the path, I'm talking to you super loud too. So equally, sure. I think I don't know. Cool. Maybe maybe cool. we'll think about that more later. Um. We'll go into Origin, right? Our co- company, OriginMain.com. Geese, Rash Guard for Jiu-Jitsu. Leif talked about Jiu-Jitsu earlier. Awesome stuff. Yeah, Origin makes the best stuff. It's uh, I've got. I, I think I have like five different. Uh, <laughs> you you have the fir- the first origin the first yeah. Origin gi I ever touched was yours. I, I think never echo you, you as well, right? Yeah. Interesting. And I was like, dang. Oh, yeah, it was, at, it was at the muster and uh yeah, in New York. For real. When you see uh, the weave yeah. like on the origin gi, the pattern in you're there. Gonna, you're gonna understand. You're gonna get Here, stoked. Do the, do you have do you have currently do you have any other gis that are not origin? I have three gis. I have one non origin okay. gi, I have two origin gis. Sure, go put that on. Try put that on. And, and I like then, he says it like it's a threat. No, well, put that on. See what happens, boy. See what happens. And I'm serious because I, I put on mine. I was like, oh, should I keep this or not? I put I put on you know one of my old. And I was like, bro, I can't I can't wear this. Like it doesn't. You know it's what? not we correct. Donate, donate those geese. I, even <laughs> even at the at the at the white belt level, uh, I can totally tell that uh, I roll better in my origin gear. Oh yeah. See now that's that's a whole nother level. I said I said they felt good. He's rolling better. I'm telling you. I know, but there's something about like the it it actually has give to yeah. my shoulders i can move in a, in a way that like i with my other gi it's like it's it's really yeah. tight i can't move and i feel yeah. like i don't yeah, I, I actually true. I, I seem to be more what successful perc- in what percentage gear. of increased performance do you achieve wearing an origin gi? at least 19 percent. <laughs> at least 19 okay yeah, minimum perfect. of 19 percent. actually that is a good point because i had a gi it was like my second gi ever and i was like hey that one looks cool because it had like cool designs on it or whatever and it was like thick material for some reason i thought that beefy thick material look cool so i got it and it i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name the name of the brand so it doesn't even matter but um yeah when i'm rolling it it feels like more claustrophobic like with which it. we know you have an issue with i did place. before yeah back in did those i cure days, you that yeah. did, I, did i cure you of claustrophobia i, I think you were a contributing Dang. factor to the cure of my claustrophobia. i was rolling yes. with andy and we were rolling with the gi and i was trying to do like a crazy whatever 
thing. Lapel, not lapel. What's the what's the down here? Like the bottom part of the jacket. Yeah, that's the lapel. So I had Andy and I was tr- and I was almost just working something, and I couldn't. I didn't have enough jacket out. And I was like, I'm, I whispered to him, I'm like, I'm gonna have Origin make you a thing monkey with longer <laughs> for you, long, by for the me way. to wear, yeah. for him to wear. Him to when wear I'm rolling with him. Yes, exactly. And then he was doing he. You know how people drag your jacket and they get between your leg on a single. You know what I mean? Yes. And he, he's doing. He's like, that's his game right now. And. Um, I told him, I'm, and then I was like, I'm going to make have Origin make a gi for me that's shorter there so you can't grab it. So yeah, anyways. Taylor to your gi. We got to do it. We got to do but it. But that makes sense, though. If you roll better, like if you're feeling like you're kind of in a straight jacket. I'm not saying other brands feel like straight jacket. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you have a specific feeling while you're rolling and it's improving Just your The, the your fit game, of it makes all the difference true. for me. Yeah. And, and uh, particularly for a guy like me it's not very flexible, it's, uh, it's awesome. And it, uh, it definitely improves your game and it helps you. And, and you look good, by the way, side note. <laughs> also, speaking of looking good and feeling good and comfort, they do have joggers and T-shirts and whatnot. Most comfortable joggers still to date in my experience, which is, means a lot. Are you getting Jocko to wear those joggers yet? <laughs> I I, joggers yet. Yeah, I think Even though they're the, apparently sure. the undisputed champion of comfort, according to yes. and, and rash guards. I, I wear I wear the rash guard when I'm working out some days the days I wear it when I'm working out it's long sleeve is when I'm doing a lot of stuff on the rings so my arms don't get all chafed up which is a comfort move if you break it down just saying yeah well let's I'm approaching say the, that let's say the results of not having the rash guard imp- or impedes or gets in the way of your functionality or something like this True. you know you know how like um like some people they'll wear, they'll wear straps or they'll wear um I don't know what other oh like you someone know? that's in a full powerlifting suit yeah you ever seen that yeah well, like I, the full thing yeah but that's more of like in a I don't know it's when a, someone a, else has example. to put your belt on you. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? When they're like heaving, there's two or three people trying to heave the belt into position. Yeah, yeah I guess. No, I'm thinking more because like comp- compare that to your rash guard scenario, right? It's like something something that's going to like, you know, people wear those things on their hands so they don't get blisters. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, So yeah. the blisters, sure, you could power through it, but it, if, if it was measurable, would it get in the way of the performance? Mm-hmm. The blister. If you do rip a callus, which sometimes people post rip callus and, and I get it. Like you got a good workout in, but guess what? Your tomorrow's workout is not going to be as good, especially right, if you got deadlifts. Think, exactly. Tomorrow right. on the deadlifts with the rip callus from pull-ups, it's, it's a bad yeah. Thing. So you need, you need to go saying. back for some maintenance and uh, <laughs> yeah. make sure you don't rip those calluses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the question is, I'm stoked you got after it. Yeah. But I'm not stoked the next day when you're like not being able to lift. Yeah. So let's say they wore gloves, or in your case, you wear the rash guards. Is that technically for comfort? Or is it for you know oh, to so facilitate functionality? Me. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I could see fit to say that I've witnessed you do anything for comfort, as far as getting after it goes. Okay, well that's cool. I'll, yeah, I'll keep note. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll keep looking for that one. Also, what supplements? Oh, yeah. Jocko has supplements. Yeah, Jocko, what supplements? See, we got, got Joint Warfare. We got Krill Oil. We got Discipline. Joint warfare and krill oil is for your joints. And now, surprisingly, alternate fact, curcumin yeah. is also good for your brain function, yes. apparently, yeah. which I could use all the help I can get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
I just I just got an order in uh, a new <coughs> new replacement order in for some krill oil and uh, joint nice. warfare. Yes. Uh, Wait, and you're you're on the discipline train right now. I'm on the discipline train. I got, right at uh, this moment, I see you got some discipline. Right, right, right at this moment. Uh, unfortunately, I lost discipline earlier. Yeah, dude, this <laughs> is yeah. weird. Lack of discipline. Yeah, sure. he had a lack. He 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 made discipline and then he lost his discipline. <laughs> I mixed up a huge bottle of discipline at Jocko's house, and then as we were leaving to come here, I'm like. What the hell did I do with it? I was like, Leif, where is your discipline? I, I, think, yeah, yeah. I think your dog is probably getting after right now, <laughs> just like on level 19. <laughs> but you got it back, though. I see, so that's uh, good. Yeah, mulk. Can't forget about the mulk, which is the tastiest of all tasties. Best of this okay. is comfort. So you, this uh, is a comfort yeah, food. Oh, yeah, this yeah, is a comfort that is true. food. That is true. And I'll be honest with you. Now, maybe I'd burn myself out on mint. But I've been going, I've been going Richter on yeah. TV. Yeah, and then I, I haven't tried these yet. I oh, only have, I've got mint chocolate chip that I've. We'll, we'll go get some out right really after. That's really So the okay, so the chocolate or the, the peanut butter chocolate mm-hmm. comes in, right? Oh, big hype! We're talking about it. When's it coming? It's supposed to come in this one week. It took what a few days later, whatever. Big hype comes in. Everyone's fired up. I'm one of those people. <laughs> so I'm like, boom, pounding. So I'm pounding a uh, uh, chocolate peanut butter now, pounding it, milk train. Full speed, double milk train. <laughs> so after a while, I'm pounding the, the the peanut butter, you know, one, and and then I look and I still have that mint one. One day uh-huh. I go in, I'm gonna make it. I see the mint one, and the mint one, it looked like it was looking at me like, "What did you forget about me?" You know, like I was cheating on the mint, like I had left the mint, you know. So uh, I put the mint one back in, and I was reminded that that is my favorite one. Yeah, it's the your favorite mint. flavor. Yeah, yeah, I I hear you, but um, they they taste. Good. Yeah, see, it's kind of like it's kind of like um, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous that you can just completely eat that and just enjoy it. Yeah, my <laughs> daughter's been posting. I've been retweeting it. Someone's been posting like mulk recipes. Oh yeah, and yeah. there are all these. That's kind, a good I, idea. I, by I, the way. With you, I haven't tried any of them yet yeah. because. I just that's not my thing. What do you? We sure. just put it straight in milk. Oh no, I just put it in milk. But this guy's creating like m- like cookies, balls, cookies, yep, all kinds of crazy <laughs> milk conventions. Yeah, and they look good. Yeah. And he's saying they taste good. So I don't know. I'll give them a try. You what you do is, or what I wound up doing is, because peanut butter is like in my opinion undeniable thing in life. Peanut butter. The flavor. <laughs> it, it is so the mint it does chocolate exist. does. So I put the <laughs> peanut butter, actual peanut butter. Sometimes you can mix one scoop uh, and one yeah, scoop. You yeah. know, peanut butter chocolate and the mint chocolate. Cool, but I. You've do done that? Oh yeah. I'm not all doing day. that. That's like crossing the streams and Ghostbusters. As oh far yeah, as I'm and, concerned. You, and you know that's how they won the movie. <laughs> that's how they defeated the bad guy. They crossed the stream. So uh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Shit. I'll stand down over so here. What you do is you put. Um, Peanut butter with the milk one. That's the, uh, do that. Report back. Okay, I'll, I'll try uh, you that know, if you want. Hey, I would at this time invite everyone to the immersion camp, but it's sold out. So I'm sorry. Uh, sign up next year early and come hang out with us at the immersion camp. Check. Yes. yes. Also, good way to to support Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store, and this is where you can get apparel. Apparel's cool, right? Yeah. Fashion is not cool. Not cool. Okay. We the term do fashion. fashion. Okay. Yeah, cool. Apparel. But if you want to represent, <laughs> it's not what we're doing. All right. There you go. But you will look fashionable if you accept the term no, fashionable. Jocko doesn't. Maybe not. Yeah. All good. You'll look good though. I think. I don't know. That's a matter of opinion. But if you want to represent, that's where you can get shirts, rash guards, hats, trucker hats, namely. Trucker, L- Leif, trucker hat or flex fit. Where are you at? 
chugger at. See, there you go. Dang, more See? than the flex fit, huh? Yeah. Interesting. We, I'm, a, I'm not against actually, that, Actually, speaking way, of just... report back, yeah. I want to know what sells more, trucker hat or or flex fit. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I'll we'll check, find out I'll what the deal is on that. Yeah. And also, got a long comment about hoodies. Mm-hmm. A guy from Michigan mm-hmm. that works construction said, hey, Jocko, just letting you know, in Michigan, we do need lightweight hoodies. Oh, boom. So now, I, like, okay. everything I've ever said yeah. has been disproven. Now, yeah. this is one man's opinion. Yes. You know? Well, here's the thing about that when you kind of did take a step back. It's like you you just went extreme. You weren't wrong. You just went extreme. That's all. You know, I you got to do the balance. You got to have the balance. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Bring it back. Have that so, balance. Yeah. the equilibrium. So this guy in Michigan, he had the balance because he knows the extreme. He yeah. knows about the value yeah. of the thick balance. hoodies I, in Michigan. I got to say for the folks in Michigan, though, like uh, being up there in North Dakota, doing some work, like when you go to Alaska and you, you know, it's like pretty cool out and you, you got your jacket on, you're looking around, there's dudes in like t-shirts just hanging out that's <laughs> yeah. the way i was it's all relative yeah, i was always like that too this like in maine just wear i just wear a heavy sweatshirt all day long i mean all winter long maybe occasionally you got to throw on some kind of a parka in you, you know what a parka is being oh. from hawaii no it sounds yeah it's, it's <laughs> what you do thing. with your I, car right on the trucker hat uh, flex foot debate though like flex foot i think is great i, I like flex flex foot hats but i will say i got a large melon and uh <laughs> being able to adjust is is important bro yeah. particularly like when you're fishing and you're rolling out and your hat gets blown off and it's yeah. then it's soaking wet and you're like hey, the largest melon uh, i've ever seen on a human there was a guy on the special boat teams who was a great dude he was a big i'll just say polynesian Maybe he was Filipino, maybe he was Polynesian, I don't know, but he was something like that, right? Pacific Islander, I guess. His head was so big. Okay, you know a Protec helmet? You know what a, you know what a Protec helmet yes. It's like a Protec bike helmet. He had one of those for, for riding in the boat, for like sh- doing operations where you gotta wear a helmet. Mm. He had one of those, and he had all the foam inside of it, all of it was gone, and we still had to like basically grease up his head <laughs> to get that thing on. His, and it would be, it was crazy how big his head was huge. Yeah. And he was a great dude, but he had a huge head. Again. He had no protection. He just had a little thin, he only wore that thing because it was a part of the rules. Right, right? technicality. He yeah, could have yeah. just called, he could have look, I don't need a helmet. My freaking My skull is, is nine <laughs> inches thick. Get away from me. I can't even put this stupid helmet on, people. All right. Yeah, so he would need the flex fit. Need a lot of flex in that fit. He'd need a lot of flex in that fit. I don't think the trucker would fit. Nonetheless. Anyway, like I said, jockostore.com. This where you can get all this cool, my opinion, cool stuff. Some women's stuff. Make on new there stuff too, too. New stuff is on there, yeah. Jocko white tee. There's a shirt. So my brother has a Pepsi shirt uh, and a garbage remember garbage pale kids? Yes. You yeah. know the little cards. I they're remember. like so my twin brother Jake, he has a garbage pail kid shirt and you'd think as a an adult you're like all right but it kind of you know it's kind of cool it's a cool shirt and then you, you get a, your pepsi shirt like even if you don't drink pepsi it just looks cool right so we got a jocko white t-shirt so you it looks just jack cool. so that was not i thought i actually gave you credit in my mind for having an original cool because i thought i did yeah. think it looked pretty cool it's yeah it, <laughs> it, the thing is it does the the fact is that concept is a very cool concept i didn't okay. do it because hey pepsi did it so let's do it that's not why i did it okay. i think that, that that concept is cool right on Check. you know jock white tea let me get this shirt and it's a t-shirt oh, we call funny. those layers anyway yeah some new stuff on there um check it out check 
also good way to support is to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, you know, wherever you, wherever you listen to your podcast, just subscribe. That's a good way to support. And leave a review if you're in the mood. And you know you want your kids to listen to this podcast, but you know you can't because sometimes it's completely inappropriate. But for that reason, we have the Warrior Kid podcast. And that's questions from Uncle Jake or for Uncle Jake. And so you can get that one too. The YouTube. We also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to. Hey, subscribe. You know what? Let's not do this. You never watch a YouTube video and then end, at the end it goes, please subscribe and click whatever. Right, click. We're click. not going to do that. Yeah. We're not going to do that. When you think about it, and I don't want to go into a whole deep thing here, but it seems like as a consumer, mm. right, as an as a, as a audience member, a viewer of videos, whatever, you and it does defeat the whole purpose of clicking like, right, when you like a Let video. Let me ask you this. How many people do you think get the end of a YouTube video where it says, click subscribe now to watch more awesome videos? How many people does that convince, push them over the edge, and they just well, can't stop from I, clicking I, that subscribe button? I, I don't know, <laughs> but from what I've read before, it's like they recommend that, like that you do that as yeah. a content creator is what they call it. They say, yeah, hey, just ask because people will do it kind of thing. It's kind of like, hey, you can't get it if you don't ask. But it does kind of give you this kind of underlying feeling of like you're asking me to do something that's made to be organic. It's made to be, <laughs> if you like this video, you press like, that's what that thing is made for. And now you're asking me to violate that whole reason that it's yeah. made. So you want me to do it as like, a favor. Like you I, want me to like your like, videos as a favor. Like I was watching your video because I thought we were just cool. I th yeah, And I thought we were just having a little moment, right? A little sure. two minute and 30 second moment. <laughs> sure. And then I get to the end of it and now you all of a sudden you're coming out saying, asking me to do this and do yeah. that. No, yeah. this was, now I see what it was. Yeah. It was a setup. <laughs> and look, I'm not saying that's what people are doing. I'm not saying that's what you're doing if you're doing that. I'm just saying as a consumer or as a right, viewer, right. that's what it kind of feels like. Well, we'll try and avoid that try to, yeah. by just saying, hey, on this podcast, yeah. go there and subscribe to it. That way you won't get bothered with a little thing from Echo at the end that says, please click subscribe to right. catch more videos from Echo Charles. <laughs> Actually, here, let's put it this way. The most, the most, how should I say, accurate, for lack of a better term, way to put it. If you didn't know that we have a YouTube channel, we do. If you didn't know you could subscribe to it, boom, now you do. If you want to subscribe, you can, but that yeah. goes without saying, obviously. Okay. Same thing with the likes. The likes. I like it. That's a YouTube. That's YouTube. Subscribe to it. Yep. It's true. Also, if you're working out, you want to switch it up, I'm going to talk about on it. So, onit.com slash Jocko. Here's the thing, too, which I kind of forget to say. You get 10% off if you go to the slash Jocko. Mm -hmm. So go on it.com slash Jocko. So when you're buying your kettlebells, primal bells, legend bells, rings, and, you know, battle robes, stuff like that, go on it.com slash Jocko. That's where you can get 10% off. Really good stuff there. Good info as well. Psychological Warfare is an album with tracks. We're working on number two right now, so we'll make that happen. And I'm getting some good requests via the interwebs mm -hmm. about what should be on there. So iTunes, Google Play, MP3 platforms, you can get that Psychological Warfare album. With tracks. But what is that for, though? We're not going to let you say it. Everybody knows what it's for. <laughs> What's it for? Don't say uh, it. Do you know what it's for? Yes, he knows what it's for. It's to combat those moments of weakness that we all have. I'm going to make a Just psychological track about how to not say something that has been said. 
quit. What do you do? How hey. do you do it? Oh, yeah. It's something a dead that's, horse. That's so. something that's not been said. Yeah, beat a dead horse. Yeah, I'm just saying if they, if this is the first time they, they heard it, they're going to be like, hey, what is that psychological warfare? I know what regular, the traditional psychological yeah. warfare is. It's kind of like if I kept saying, hey, Jocko White T, oh, you know what? You can you can deadlift 8,000 pounds. And I kept saying that over and over again and never stopped saying it. Yeah. That'd be kind of like what you're doing. Yeah, but so it seems like from your perspective, but from the perspective of someone just tuning in, you're not seeing <laughs> it just over tuning and over. in? We're 138 podcasts deep. Here's the thing. And they uh, started here. Oh, if okay. they did, they'll go listen to another one. They'll hear it eventually, bro. Yeah. And then they'll start to hear it over and over again. Right, but cool. for, I'm saying as an individual account, which means more. In my opinion. Yeah. Okay. I think this can all be said on the mat. Yeah. That's right. I <laughs> no, agree with you. Thank no, you. Bro. No, 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 no. We're getting yes. answers. I like it. Gotta be re- Jocko anyway. White Tea, Amazon, cans. You can get cans. People don't know this. You can get cans of Jocko White Tea. It's stop drinking other energy drinks that are filled with sugar and other crap and get yourself some uh, Jocko White Tea. Let me tea. ask you this. So you know how there's these pre-workouts? Yeah. Right? You know what a pre-workout uh, thing yeah. is, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like super, like it's... I don't know what pre-workouts are, but I know what pre-workouts are. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? The one they have, ca- they have like a bunch of caffeine, whatever. The the label is real shiny a lot of the time. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, you know the ones that have a light label that's really shiny. <laughs> yeah, I know. What <laughs> Lightning you're talking about. bolts on them a lot of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let me ask you this: If I have a Jocko White tea in a can, yeah, it's cold. Yeah, right. Very refreshing. And then I put some of that energy uh, pre-workout in it since it doesn't have that much caffeine and I was maybe looking for some caffeine. If I put that pre-workout stuff in the in the Jocko White tea, how much of a violation is that on a scale from 1 to 10? I don't think it's a violation, but I would just use discipline. You can put discipline in Jocko White yeah, tea. Yeah, but that's just another microdose of caffeine, though. Oh, so, so now you, you just got want caffeine? But I'm I like reckon- the Jocko White tea. That's the thing. Sure, there's, this taste got jammed up. There's 60 milligrams of caffeine in Jocko White tea. Can. Yeah, that's that's enough, bro. Let's say, hypothetically, again, hypothetically, <laughs> one was looking for more than 60 milligrams. Get. Get. Greek fire. Okay, so you know what Greek fire is? Yeah, origin. Greek fire from origin, which has caffeine in it. It's mm. it's like a it's like a fat burner, right? <laughs> so if you get that, that sure. has caffeine in it, and yeah. it'll get you it'll get you yeah. what you need. All right, so the violation level four. Yeah, sure. I I drink a lot of coffee and uh, a lot of caffeine, and I, yeah, that's Jocko White Tea's got plenty of caffeine for me. It's yeah. it's legit. I'll tell you what I like about it with the cans in particular. When it's been crazy hot in Texas oh. this summer, yeah, and just yeah. just pull like a freezing cold one out of the. Uh, if I'm about to jump on my truck, that's you know 125 degrees from sitting out in the sun, and uh, crack open a super cold while I'm rolling down the road, it's pretty legit. Yeah. That's what I like. I gotta make it. You know what I gotta make is I gotta make something that like this that you can drink before you go to bed at night. Oh yeah, huh? Just because because I can't. I mean, I want sometimes it's seven or eight o'clock at night, and I think, oh man, I'll crack one open. But then I think, no, then I'll be all wired up all night. Potentially, yeah, yeah. yeah what? So you like you put some that. sort of a um, because there's like you know tea. What do you call the tea that you brew before bed? Makes you mellow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Chamomile. So like, Kind of that, yeah. Wow. It's like chamomile tea. Whoa, whoa, Bring it whoa, on. whoa. We got uh, a situation here. Leif Babin hey, coming in strong for hey, the tea. Don't tell you're married to a, you're married to a Brit. Don't yeah. tell me you don't know all about tea. I, I didn't know about, what is it? Chamomile. Oh, yeah, yeah. look it's at true. this. Check yeah, it out. so you could take that approach. Chamomile. Right? You could, you could call it. So we could have Jocko chamomile tea. Oh, wow. You know, you could call it that if you want, yeah. I would probably just call it like, well, I'll figure something out. But I will do that. 
something because hardcore. I do need something at night warm yeah. uh, hot in the summertime or hot in the wintertime but you could drink it cold that's tasty because that's the thing about the the Jocko white tea is the taste is good like we yeah. had this I thought where you're going with this was if you had a can of Jocko white tea mm. and a can of the most sweet like like doctored up thing that's supposed to taste delicious. Which yeah. would you pick? I'd pick Jocko White Tea all day long because yeah. the taste is. Yeah. You know when you you know when you realize that Gatorade. No offense against Gatorade. No, a little bit of offense. Gatorade. You know when you realize that Gatorade doesn't actually quench your thirst. Like when you're, I don't know. I think I was twenty, right? And I was real thirsty, and I drank a Gatorade, and I was like, "Why am I still thirsty?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. That because there's syrup in there or whatever mm-hmm. doesn't work good. Mm. Jock white tea, you get that quench. It's not like you get that. that legit yeah. quench yeah. going. <laughs> <laughs> well, this for back to the energy or the pre-workout mix in the tea scenario. This person that we're talking about didn't finish it because it did jam up the whole tea scenario. Okay, it was well, like a theory. That's cool. Check. Nonetheless, yeah, there it is. Boom. Jocko White Tea, um, outstanding. Hey, books. We got Way of the Warrior Kid books. Way of the Warrior Kid and Mark's Mission. Those are good books for kids to read. Just talking to a teacher out in the gym. Yeah. Teaching the book. Eighth grade, if you're wondering about, well, how old is an eighth grader? 11, 12. 11, 12. Yes. So 11, 12-year-old, definitely in Maybe the zone. Maybe 13. Sometimes when I meet someone and their kid is eight, or 10 I just think your kids in the zone yeah and they dig it so way the warrior kid and Mark's mission I just just started reading uh, way the warrior kid to uh, my son does he get it he's three, three right he's three does yeah. he get it uh, we got we got about 30 pages into oh, it he was like yeah. fired up and he wanted to go out and do some pull-ups <laughs> <laughs> it's funny they get certain parts yeah. right yeah. They, you know the the grander kind of messages may not you know compute quite yet but yeah they'll get certain parts so they'll like like when this part comes yeah just keep doing it um, that's what um, I do Stoked at the feedback on that one. Also, discipline equals freedom. Field manual. It's a manual about how to get after it. Sure. And the audio version is not on Audible. It's on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, and other MP3 platforms. So you can make it a, specifically. We did that. Yeah. Maybe took a little financial hit. Whatever. Want people to be able to use it as an alarm clock in their phone or a ringtone. Mm-hmm. So that's what you can do there. Those are uh, a, a few books. Then we got, then we got extreme ownership, obviously, which uh, Jocko and I wrote. Been out for three years now. We have a new new edition out, and of course, uh, dichotomy of leadership, which uh, we were just talking about, and that's for. Uh, it's available now for pre order. It'll be released September twenty fifth. Super excited about that. Looking forward to uh, all you readers out there uh, providing us some feedback on that, and uh, I hope this is at least as useful to you uh, in, in your lives, professional and personal lives as extreme ownership. So go get some dichotomy of leadership. Find the balance. You also, Leif, t- talk to me about the difference between first edition and let's say fifth edition of a book. Which would you rather have? Which was which would I rather have? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I'd have to go with the first edition. That's right. Damn right. That's sort of the standard. Yeah, it's the standard. Is there anyone running around going, man, I wish I had the ninth edition? Yeah, can't wait book. for that fourth edition. <laughs> yeah. Mm. That, it is pretty it. cool with Extreme Ownership with, with their, uh, with, I, people yeah. still come up to us yeah. and have, you know, with, with a, the co- and the original paper this was printed on was not very good yep. for Extreme Ownership. You know, it, it doesn't have the, uh, and it doesn't have the number one New York Times bestseller across the top. Yep. So every once in a while we still see some of those. And you're like, wow, that's a, that's a, that was a, first printing run yeah. i just it's pretty I just, cool to see i that. just did that the other day so a girl came up and i was signing her her first edition and there's 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 four editions that you could possibly have there's more than that but the first one that came out is white and there's no sticker on as soon as they as soon as that made new york times bestseller they went and got stickers that says number one new york times bestseller and they put them everywhere because it's a it's an advertising gig right but there's so the people that got the first ten thousand copies it's just a plain first edition. So, I know there's people and then you got then then they got the stickers on it. So you're still early. Mm. Then you got the one that actually has printed on the cover number 1 New York Times bestseller blah blah blah. And then finally we get to the fourth the fourth version which is the black cover back in black mm. which is we, we have to say that one's pretty dope It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it does it's look a different r- wicked cool. It's a different avenue of coolness. <laughs> yeah, though. it's a different avenue of coolness, but still the first edition we always like the first edition, and if you, so, if the, my point is, if you want the first edition, you got to order it pre. Yeah. Otherwise, you're gonna get some other. You know, you'll get one that says something else on it. Be yeah. all different, and we'll know when yeah. I meet you. I'll just, I'll just be. Oh, you want me to sign that for yeah. you? Huh? That's cool. <laughs> I'm glad you got in the game eventually. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, man, appreciate it. Um, Echelon Front. If you if you're interested in coming and uh, bringing us in to talk to your your, your leadership team, uh, your your frontline troops, your mid level managers, whatever it may be, uh, that's what we do with Echelon Front is we solve problems through leadership. Everything that we wrote about extreme ownership, all the things that we just talked about for dichotomy of leadership, this is what we do. Uh, it's me and Jocko. We launched this company going on seven years now. Um, and we worked with a lot of companies since. And now, you know, in addition, we've got, uh, t- to me and Jocko, we got JP Donnell, we got Dave Burke, we got Flynn Cochran, we got some Mike Sorelli, and we just picked up a new member of our team, uh, Main Gun Mike Bahama, a uh, company commander with us in Ramadi, outstanding, outstanding guy, awesome team of folks. And uh, so, you're interested in what we do through Echelon Front, go hit us up at uh, echelonfront.com. Also, we got the muster, which is. Uh Two days leadership conference seminar gathering. That's what I'll we'll call it. The gathering. The it's gathering. a leadership muster. That's what it so is. Straight up. Yeah. October seventeenth and eighteenth, up in San Francisco. All the other ones have sold out. This is the sixth muster. They've all sold out. This one's gonna. This one's gonna sell out even earlier. Actually, I think yeah, so. It's, We're uh, way ahead of schedule. Way ahead of schedule. If you want to come to it, extremeownership.com, you can come to the muster. And then also for our. Military, law enforcement, firefighters, border patrol, paramedics, first responders, anybody in uniform, we're, we're launching our first ever uh, first responder military uniform wearing focused uh, leadership uh, gathering. And this is we're calling it the roll call. Roll call 001. Uh, first ever is going to happen uh, September 21st in Dallas. And uh, this thing is for, it, was, it was by request. We worked with so many different uh, first responders and uh, you know, fire, uh, fire departments and law enforcement uh, groups and police departments, federal, state, local. We, we worked with all levels of uh, you know of of, uh, of these groups, and, and we've had so many folks say, "Hey, 
can we have a, a, a focused leadership conference just for us? And that's what this is. So we've got uh, several hundred people have already already signed up for this thing. This is this is for you guys. This is for all, all you listeners that, that are interested in this. We tried to make it at a price point that was much more affordable than the muster uh, so that we could we could have uh, as many folks attend as as could come. And uh, we hope you come from far and wide to be there. We're going to be talking about the importance of training, the importance of uh, dealing with what you deal with every day and driving those standards and uh, and, and pushing your team uh, and leading up the chain uh, as, as well as, uh, you know, all, all those kind of specific law enforcement, firefighter, first responder, uh, military-focused issues um, that we can really dive into. You know, we don't have to talk about the business leader stuff because this is for you guys. That's what it's for. So if you're interested in that, if you're on the fence, if you're thinking about it, come join us for uh, Roll Call at uh, in Dallas, September 21st. And... Of course, you've heard on this podcast, we've, we launched a new company, a subsidiary company to Echelon Front. It's called Echelon Front Overwatch, or EF Overwatch. And uh, you can check that out at, uh, at, at efoverwatch.com. It's, uh, it's a great company designed to uh, – we, we, one of the biggest things that, that, uh, that we see from the companies we work with is people ask us, where can we get people like you? Where can we get folks with a, a mindset of extreme ownership? And so we started that in the special operations world, and the goal of Overwatch is to, to take uh, special operations veterans and combat aviator veterans and uh, place them in companies with uh, play, place them in companies who are looking for people with, with that mindset. And EF Overwatch is is, uh, is something I'm, I'm super excited about. We we have a massive demand signal right now. Frankly, we have a lot more clients that are reaching out. These companies that are seeking uh, folks to place and uh, and offer them job opportunities, and we have a lot more clients than we have on the candidate side. So, if you're a, a special operator uh, and you're you're about to be retired or or leaving uh, j- just leaving the military, or have left uh, even a few years ago, or on the combat aviation side. Go to efoverwatch.com, fill out the uh, uh, the, the application there, and uh, start the paperwork because we've got there's an awesome opportunity uh, here for uh, some great companies with uh, some some great leadership positions and some some uh, promising promotion opportunities in uh, in some companies that exhibit extreme ownership that have that as part of their culture. So uh, don't miss out on those opportunities. Go to the website, uh, input your information, efoverwatch.com. And uh, come get in the game. There's a lot of uh, a lot of great work to be done. A lot of massive opportunity out there. Companies need good leaders. Come and get it. And until we see you at the muster, or we see you at roll call, or we see you at the immersion camp doing that jujits. If you want to ask us questions, or if you want to give us answers, you can find us on the interwebs. On Instagram, Leif is at real Leif Babin on Twitter and on that visible Leif is at Leif Babin and of course on all those echo is at echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink echo anything else negative Leif any closing thoughts good to be back on with you guys again awesome. stand by to get some <laughs> always good to have you and Thanks to everyone for listening and supporting this podcast, especially to those people that make this podcast possible. The people that make this podcast possible. And it's not some long list of sponsors. The people that make this podcast possible is our military, 
our police, law enforcement, firefighters, border patrol, paramedics, other first responders. Without you protecting us from evil abroad and keeping us safe here at home, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. So thank you for doing what you do. And to everyone else out there, whether you are making something or baking something, whether you're serving food or serving warrants, whether you work in a bank or you build banks, if you wear a suit and tie or you wear coveralls and a hard hat, no matter who you are and what you do, do it to the best of your ability. Take pride in your work and be the best you can, but at the same time, stay balanced. Be aggressive, but not reckless. Take ownership, but empower your team. Be humble, but not passive. Be disciplined, but be free. Balance the dichotomies of leadership and the dichotomies of life. And as you do that, keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Leif and Echo and Jocko. Out.